Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. My guest today is Tom Herbert, better known as the Useful Coach on the social media. You might have seen him at Useful Coach on Instagram. Tom is a leader in the field of sports nutrition for climbing specifically. He has a really cool philosophy that I loved learning about. And even if you think nutrition episodes are boring, I implore you to give this one a chance. I think you'll find it very, very engaging. We talked about all sorts of stuff in this episode. We talked about Tom's philosophy of getting climbers to eat more to support higher training volume and having that be the driver for their improvement. We talked about protein amounts and muscle protein synthesis and how to optimize that. We talked about carbohydrate recommendations and timing. That was really interesting. We talked about food quality, why Tom recommends supplementing with leucine if you follow a vegetarian or a vegan diet, and a lot more. We really got into the details in this episode and I really hope it helps. I think this was a really powerful episode. As you saw from the title, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode. This one really is a standalone. I actually had a full conversation with Tom. We ran out of time. We had a ton of stuff left to talk about, and we recorded a separate conversation a couple of weeks later. That will be out next week. In the second part, we covered the nervous system really dove into that. It was fascinating. We talked about how we can use breathing to relax so that we can perform better and be more powerful. Kind of counterintuitive, really interesting. And I really encourage you to come back next week for part two with Tom Herbert. I really enjoyed talking to this guy. He's super articulate and just an awesome guest. A couple pieces of housekeeping before we jump into this episode. I would like to give a huge shout out to Brian Fast. Brian is the first person to sign up for a brand new Patreon tier. I haven't even talked about it yet, but I just added a couple tiers to the Patreon, a $30 tier and a $50 tier. Brian was the first person to sign up at the $30 level. Super awesome, huge help to the podcast. And by signing up for $30 a month, Brian is choosing to support The Nugget and Climbing for Change and Sacred Rock, all three organizations for $10 each, which is awesome. Super cool. So thank you, Brian. If you have the means and you're loving the show and you want to help out and you want to help out those other organizations, you can head over to patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. You can also find a link to that on my website at thenuggetclimbing.com. There's a lot more information there. You can learn about all the perks. Getting a shout out on the show is one of the big ones. And I will also be putting Brian's name in the credits for this episode and for every episode from here on out, as long as he is a patron. It's a huge help. It's so generous. And Brian, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you to every single one of my patrons. Every dollar truly does help me out. It adds up really fast. And at this point, you guys are literally keeping the Nugget Climbing Podcast alive. So I can't thank you enough for your support. It really means the world to me. On that same note, I've got another follow-up coming out this coming week. So keep your eye out for that. This is a round two, a second follow-up with Natasha Barnes. She reached out to me after my recent 
sends in Rocky Mountain National Park. I ended up sending Veritas Sit and Eternia, my first two V11s. And she reached out and was just really psyched to see me come back and climb my hardest at a heavier body weight than before, stronger than before. And I got really excited to talk about that with her because she's also crushing now too. She's mostly a power lifter, but she's been spending more time on the tension board. She recently climbed a V9 outside again. And it was a really cool conversation. I was curious to hear how she's been training with climbing and what has changed as she's kind of relearning how to climb in a new body, what feels better, what feels different, if there's anything that she feels like she still needs to work on to be back to her previous level, et cetera, et cetera. And I shared some of my thoughts on my progression and shared a little bit more about those recent ascents. So if you wanna check that out, keep your eye out for a teaser coming this week. And the full follow-up episode will be available for patrons as soon as that teaser drops in the feed. Much love to you guys. I hope you are having an amazing fall season so far, crushing your projects with these amazing temps, at least those of you listening from the Northern Hemisphere. And thanks again for listening. Please enjoy this deep dive into climbing nutrition with Tom Herbert. Well, hi. 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 Good to see you. Good to see you too. Sorry, my face is half in uh, in filtered sunlight here. Um, this is perhaps my most makeshift podcast setup so far of the podcast. I'm in Boulder, Colorado right now in my van. This is a little sneak peek behind the curtain for people that have daydreamed about van life. My van's in the shop right now. <laughs> it won't start reliably, so I'm trying to get that sorted out. Um, so I'm recording this from a Whole Foods courtyard. <laughs> and there's like cars going by and birds chirping and, and people working on their laptops nearby and people pushing shopping carts nearby. So if you, I, I, my, uh, my audio, this will test my audio editing skills to the max. But, All right. Um, yeah, I wonder if people will be able to hear the background noises of Boulder. <laughs> That's nice. It's a bit of a bit of ambience. A bit of ambience, exactly. Yeah, I've got a nice view of the Flatirons. Actually, it's a beautiful day. Good. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I um. Yeah, nothing to report. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> rinse, rinse and repeat. I think. Rinse and repeat. All right. I went, to a, I went out to I went. I went out to a. Uh, I went out to a to an, like a, an outdoor club night thing okay. on weekends, which I've been waiting for. And talking about audio, it was so bad that I went home. Basically, like we arrived like, <clears throat> and the sound was amazing. And we thought this is gonna be, you know, one of the best nights of our life. And then somewhere along the line, one of the DJs or, or the audio engineers decided to change something. Oh no. And basically just flattened the whole sound to the point where, it was hilarious. And you can see it in some of the videos of the event, like the, you know, the music sort of building up da, 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 and waiting for the drop to come in and half the crowd is sort of like, um, <laughs> and they're like, cause all the music's just like, and it's just this flat. Huh? 
Dang. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't be here. I mean, I, you know, I get better sound in my kitchen, but. <laughs> oh, that's too I bad. Disappointed. Yeah. Probably a lot of buildup with, uh, with COVID and everything too. I'm, I imagine you haven't been able to go to many shows over the no, last year. No, exactly. That, I mean, I, I've been to a big sort of outdoor event earlier and that was incredible. Okay. Um, but, um, but this was a kind of, there's a famous DJ called Carl Cox, who's been around since the nineties. Okay. Um, and uh, so I went to go see him, but it was abysmal. I mean, Dang. it was so bad that the, 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 the guys who, who hosted it were deleting our comments off Instagram, <laughs> basically saying like, what's going on with the audience? So too bad. A bit like the IFCA. <laughs> Might be some parallels there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's good to talk to you. Can you hear me? Okay. I can, yeah. Okay, I mean, am, I loud en- am I loud enough? I've got a... Yeah, you sound great. Nice mic. Oh, yeah. you do have a nice mic. Yeah, you've got headphones and a nice mic. You've done this before. Oh, yeah. You, d- have you never listened to any of my climb side, did you? Climb side? No, I haven't yet. No. Don't worry. Tell me Don't about worry. that real quick before we jump so, in. Yeah, so, I mean, w- that was done in, I think it was almost like 2017, 2018 now. Okay. Which seems miles away, but... And that all that was was basically me and Brian Rigby of climbingnutrition.com um, who basically thought we wanted to put some information out about nutrition because literally by then, the only person who was putting out any information was Neely Quinn mm. um, uh, and doing a very good job. But, you know, she had her, her angle, very much sort of paleo-faced angle. And we wanted to do something that was very science-based um, and very kind of rigorous. And so we did this podcast called Climb Sci. And our episode length was like two hours minimum. <laughs> and we would just cover like protein, carbohydrates, fat, recovery. And the, the episode still exists, but in the end, both of our lives kind of just got busy. Um, I started Useful Coach. And then I haven't a clue what he's doing now. I think he's, he's, trained, to, he's trained as a nurse and um, in something sort of specialist. And then he's working on that. But every now and then we pull out, we did pull it out last March, I think a kind of Q and a, which ended up being like three hours. Oh, wow. And we might, and we might do another one. Um, like basically just to, but to be honest, like the information about nutrition and stuff has, has really, you know, I mean, it's, it, 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 there's so much out there nowadays. Well, that was, that was actually a question I had is ha- would you still stand behind all your episodes? Like if I, I'll link to climb site for people that are curious and want to do a deep dive, but I know this stuff is changing and we're learning new things all the time. And, and my understand my, you know, my approach to how I eat changes every other month, mm. <laughs> it seems like. And yeah, I've been yeah. geeking out about this stuff for quite a while. So I'm, I'm curious, has your approach changed in any, in any significant way? Um, I don't think significant, but I mean, if, um, if we talk about that, you know, in, in more specifics, I can say how my kind of approach has slightly changed, Okay, but I don't think there's anything wrong mm that I can think of. I think I maybe was a little bit more enthusiastic about some supplements and not others or vice versa. But it's, but somebody asked me this a few months back and I was like, what is so surprising is that, is that I'm not worried that I have some sort of audio legacy that I, that is going to kind of catch me out. I mean, I, I am, I am amazed. I, I will go deliberately to Reddit to try and find, like look up, Tom Herbert is a crack. Like Tom Herbert doesn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like useful coach, like is an idiot. And Those I can't are brave f- things to, to type into Reddit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so far I've managed to get away with it. I've, I've the closest I found was a comment on a Russian someone someone in Russia had scraped one of my articles of my website and, and amazingly translated all into Russian. Oh wow! Um, and then someone in the in the threads commented and made and basically critiqued one reference that I made. And so I actually answered them. I went and translated what I put into Russian and answered them in Russian. So wow. That, that's the only critique I've managed to find so far. So, well, we'll see. That's After amazing. this podcast, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, you'll have to find them on your own because I try not to, to seek out critiques. <laughs> I welcome constructive feedback, but no. the internet is a scary, scary place. Um, I oh, thought yeah, Reddit. I, Reddit is. Reddit, <laughs> Reddit in particular, for sure. I thought I would start by letting people know how I got introduced to you. And then I'll ask sure. you to, to introduce yourself and the useful coach and how you got involved with that. I know you've done it before, but um, I'll, I'll make you do it again. Yeah. We can do the abbreviated version. But I first learned about you through Hazel Finley. I was talking with her. We, we did a podcast recently. Um, yeah, which I listened to. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, really thank good. you. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed talking with Hazel. And I think we were talking offline, off the record after our call. And just, she was asking me more questions about my experience with underfueling and she hadn't known about that before our conversation, or, or maybe she had listened to our episode, my, my solo episode about it. So we were kind of talking about that. And I was explaining that there's a conversation that I've wanted to have on the podcast for some time that kind of walks this precarious tightrope between these two kind of seemingly diametrically opposed conversations. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think it, it, it is really hard to talk about though, because it's so sensitive, but you know, we're entering this amazing chapter in climbing where we are talking a lot more openly about eating disorders and how big of a problem that is. Mm -hmm. And it's so prevalent. And I've shared my story and had some amazing opportunities to, to feature stories from, you know, Kai Leitner and, and Dylan Barks and have these really powerful conversations. But then on the other side of the coin, there is still this other side of the coin where we're all performance athletes. And I really want to find a way to empower people to improve their health if they want to. And if that's mm -hmm. a good move for them, you know, like I've gotten some messages from people who, uh, you know, they're overweight, they have weight to lose and they don't sure. know how to how to move forward, um, what kind of goals are healthy to have and things like that, because this landscape's really confusing. And Hazel recommended your conversation with Mina on the Curious Climbers podcast. And that was my first introduction to you. And it was one of those conversations. It was, it was an amazing episode. And I just kind of wished that I could have that conversation on my podcast. I was like, this is so good. I don't think I would change, <laughs> change a single thing. And <laughs> Mina asked excellent questions. So yeah. Um, so yeah, that got me excited to reach out to you. And I think there will be some overlap here because I'm assuming that a lot of people haven't heard that one. Um, but then I, I'm excited. I think we'll get into some other topics today too that you guys didn't tackle. So that's kind of a, a brief uh, overview uh, of how I got introduced to you. But I'd love to ask you what you currently do uh, as far as you know having the handle useful coach and how you got involved with that. And feel free to tackle that in whatever order makes sense. But I'd love to just give you the floor and let you introduce yourself to my audience. Yeah, so um, a lot of people actually don't know my name, funny enough, because <laughs> I don't really talk about it. So my name is Tom Herbert. Um, 
not to be mistaken, and I have to I have to say this, not to be mistaken with a really good veteran climber called Tom Herbert. Um, so if oh, you search funny. for Tom Herbert, yeah, if you search for Tom Herbert climber, you will see this badass guy who I think must be about fifty something in the Yosemite area, whatever. So he's done a, some incredible climbs. So if you ever see Tom Herbert on any climbing log, that's not me. That's him. <laughs> I have to say that because some people, some people DM me and they're like, Hey, I saw you the other day. And I was like, no, that wasn't me. Um, but anyway, uh, in useful coach. Uh, so at the moment, what I, what I mainly do is my focus is, is predominantly on, uh, well, actually 100% working with climbers and, I have this angle where I'm really just trying to encourage people to kind of change their, their understanding about nutrition and body composition um, for climbing as a sport. <clears throat> but what's happened is because of the way that I've been communicating a lot of things about weight and body image and um, embodiment and, and, and more of the kind of what I call the softer stuff around it. Um, I'm ending up working with, a lot more people who are coming from disordered eating backgrounds. So I'm not a dietitian or a clinical dietitian, so I don't work with people with clinical eating disorders, um, but I work with people who have either come out of that or have had maybe anorexia or bulimia or other sort of disordered eating in the past and they have gone through the system and then now are sort of in a place where, strange enough, climbing for a lot of them ended up being one of the reasons that they actually came out of that mm. um, because they saw that they wanted to, they had something bigger to get into and wanted to do as a sport. So really what that is and what's been quite surprising is that um, both in the US and the UK, I'm seeing people who are kind of still in their same patterning of eating and restricting or strange relationship between their body and, and food. And so what it really is, um, which I, again, I'm very confused why, you know, the services that they have been provided before hadn't really addressed this in a more holistic sense is really just sort of explaining or just showing them how much more they can get out of life by eating more. And I'm very focused on weight and it sounds strange, but one of the things I do is I actually get people to log their weight every single day. And I have a spreadsheet that shows the difference between each day and each week. And a lot of people would think that that's kind of why would you do that with somebody who who has you know uh, issues with weight or tracking or numbers? Mm. But the whole thing is about basically showing how stupid it is as a metric. Ah. And what's quite fascinating about doing it in this approach is that we can have a lot of more conversations about things like why it fluctuates so much and what that actually is and why it doesn't mean what you think it means and all this sort of stuff. So really in a, in a, in a, in a brief sense, useful coach um, is sports nutrition for rock climbers, but with, with a much, with a, with a much greater emphasis on the coaching side of it and the talk side of it. You know, I mean, I do, well, last week I did 18 hours of video calls, mm. but on average I do between 12 and 15 hours of video calls a week. And that's only over three days. Wow. <laughs> I, only, I, only do, I only do three days of, of client calls and the, the other two days I do admin and things like that. Is that but, private coaching one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, one-on-one. It's always one-on-one. Okay. -on -one. And the whole point is, is that it's, it's conversation-led and it's trying to understand what's going on behind the other bits and pieces. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's that is my work, and it, and man, I, I love it. It's it's hmm. incredible fun. Um, but yeah, what are some of the themes that that come up again and again? You know, you mentioned getting into it maybe with one interest in mind, and then you keep coming up against these people that have come from this background of disordered eating. What are some of the themes that you find yourself working on with people again and again? What are, what are the common hangups, I guess, for performance-oriented climbers? Well, I mean, to be honest, the, 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 the most obvious is the most obvious, and that really is the way that we view ourselves in relationship to our bodies. <clears throat> you know, we all, we all want to look like awesome, right? <laughs> Whether you, whatever you want to say, strong, sexy, lean, athletic, you know, I, I, you know, whatever, whatever works for you for, for everybody, pretty much everybody's six pack is, is the thing. It is like this symbol that you are maybe trying hard that mm. you are a strong climber. It's, it's a very strange metric. Um, for, for the guys, it tends to be the desire for the women. It's the thing that they don't want to lose. And that's one of the harder things to try and tackle is this is the, when I have climbers who come in who are already lean, right? Um, and they would look athletic, and but they realize that they probably aren't eating enough because they have these sort of niggles or, or from conversations with other people or whatever. Their struggle is that they don't want to lose that look because that's kind of an identity for them that's how they see mm. themselves and how how it how it shows in relationship to other people um and that can always be a difficult thing because as we do eat more you tend to get fluffier which i call fluffy or softer it's got almost nothing to do with body fat but really just hydration in the skin and things like that mm. um but that can be that can be troubling for people um but I do have clients who are coming in, um, you know, going to your, the point that you, you said earlier, which was about for, for certain, for some individuals who actually do have body fat that, that would be suitable for them to lose as a climber and as an athlete. So I do have people who have come in sort of in the high ranges, you know, that could be sort of 25% or more, you know. Mm. So, yeah, so... Um, but yes, and I have other 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 clients who are come in and they're at the higher end of the body fat range, and they are would, would have sort of legitimate reasons to want to as an athlete and as a climber to lo lower their body fat, and that's sort of above twenty percent for men, you know, going sort of twenty five to twenty eight percent. I've worked with some people, um, and for women it can vary a lot. Um, I tend to not quote body fat percentages for women because it actually is quite a a tricky subject in that sense. Men are very simple mm. body composition wise, but, but women, there is a much bigger genetic component, familial history and, and ancestry and things like that. But, but yeah. Well, yeah, we just touched on so many things. There's, there's so many different rabbit trails. I want to, I want to kind of explore with you. Um, I think the place I'd like to start is a conversation that you and I had a few weeks ago about climbers' current attitude with food and about this idea that most people get fixated on, and, and I certainly did this for a number of years. This is probably the greatest silver lining of of my struggle with underfueling is that I learned in hindsight, I kind of had this mindset of like, what is the least amount of food I can get away with? Right. I think I stole that from you. You just, you just said that 
sentence and it resonated so strongly. And I see so many climbers navigate their diet and food in this way all of the time, year round. Like what is the least amount of food I need to get by to be able to have enough energy to get to my project and hopefully climb it while staying as lean as possible. And it's just kind of this, um, this, this strategy or this approach of being, you know, bird-like and just, just eating light all mm. the time and just what's the least amount I can get away with and to, to quench my hunger enough that I'm not distracted by it all the time. And I think, like I said, I think that was me for many years living at Smith before I kind of tumbled down my own, my own deeper rabbit hole with it. But I guess I'd just love to hear what does the first conversation look like when someone comes in to see you and they're already very lean and you know you're you're just trying to get them to to have more energy like like how does that conversation go how do you how do you decide whether or not that's where someone is stuck that's their sticking point and that's something they need, they need to work right. on yeah i mean normally i mean i have an intake form and it's it generally says the same thing for everybody everyone has a general the same general needs every now and then i'll get someone who's generally honest and they will say, like, they'll really spell it out. And they're like, I know that I'm not eating enough, but I want to, to stay the way that I look like. And I don't know how to do that. Um, and they, they're great, right? Because they're just honest. And there's authenticity right there. And it's not to say the other people are not authentic. But what it is, is that it's almost like they're not quite sure what they want. And this depends on an education level of just general nutrition and things like that. But I literally just start with the first conversation and with that and say, you know, what do you actually want? You know, and, and for people who, who have a, a specific goal, this makes it much easier. You know, if they say, you know, I've got this climbing trip coming up in two months time, I'd really like to prepare for that. Um, then, then that gives us a sort of direction in terms of performance. But in general, I kind of do the same thing for everybody and it comes out in the wash after about two and a half weeks. Hmm. And what it is, is no matter where they come from, whether they're overweight, uh, you know, relatively speaking to climbing, climbing athletes or they're under eating, what I say is, okay, that's great. So what we're going to do is I'm going to set you what I call my recommended base targets for you. And I base that off this concept of, of energy availability, um, which we can talk about it in a little bit if you want to. Um, and then what that normally is, is a lot more food than they think would be appropriate for them. Hmm. Um, and normally what it is, is because I'm scaling the targets up much higher than, than they probably think is, is what they need. Um, and I do that deliberately for, for, for one reason is that over this two week period, which I call the discovery period is that's where I start to see the problems come up because basically somebody will say like, this just seems too much food I'm uncomfortable with this. Why has my weight gone up? Some people have the opposite. Some people really just be like, holy crap, I feel amazing. This is great. Da, 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 da. But what, what it does is it really starts to show where the trouble is and where the, where the relationship with food comes in, whether or not their body composition changes slightly. And by change, I mean, get softer, fluffier. Um, the weight is an absolute change. Um, people forget this, right? If you eat a certain amount of food, you weigh a certain amount of, of weight of food daily, right? <laughs> right. When you eat more food, you weigh more because you are eating more weight of food daily. It's got right. nothing to do with body fat. 
right? If I drink a pint of water, I weigh 500 grams more. Right? I was going to say too, you're, you know, if you're eating more carbohydrates, you have more glycogen, you're storing more of that water as well. And that can, that can really add up absolutely. quickly. Yeah, Absol absolutely. If you're eating healthier, you weigh more than if you eat junk food because healthy food has a higher fiber content. Oh, right. that's interesting. Right. So I even, I, uh, we'll talk about this later, but one of the strategies I do with the uh, competition climbers is, is, is the opposite of that. I get them to stop eating healthy so that they can what? be lighter, but we'll talk later. About okay. We have to circle back for that. I will, I will definitely bookmark that. <laughs> but in general, what, what it is, is basically to, to nudge someone. And then the second conversation, because I pretty much, except for a few clients, I pretty much have a conversation with every person every week for the long, for the duration of the coaching. And that can be, you know, one month up to, I mean, I've been working with some people for a year, mm. you know, and um, what it is is that you just get to understand that the, what someone understands is the food intake for an athlete doing an amount of work is very different from, from recommendations. Mm. Now I really, you know, I mean, I've worked with a lot of people now and I've worked and I've spoken to a lot of people, right? Um, and I always say, I don't care what my spreadsheets say. I don't care how fancy the graph is. I don't care kilograms per, you know, grams per kilogram body weight and all this. That really doesn't matter. Those are, I give guidelines of targets and I dial and tweak and manipulate and fiddle around until this recommendation or this ideal starts to look like someone's actual life and how they can implement it. Because it's all well and good reading some paper that says someone should eat five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass, but that's absolute rubbish. No one ever does that. The highest I've got someone to eat carbohydrate is about, I've had somebody hit like almost 400 grams a day on training days but that's not even close to what they would be doing if they were trying to go on specifications. And if you mm. look at any sports nutrition textbook, they're pushing six to eight grams per kilo. Yeah, that'd be hard to do without a lot of added sugar and, and liquid Absolutely. carbohydrates and things like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I did it once. I did a, I once tried to eat a cycling diet, like a diet that a cyclist would eat, like a pro cyclist. Mm -hmm. And I think it was nearly 10 grams per kilogram per body. I couldn't do it. After three days, I had to stop because it was just insane amount of sugary foods um, just to keep that level up. What were the side effects? Was it you just felt bad or you just couldn't physically get that much food in your system? Or what, what was it that... Um, I was just eating, one, I was eating all the time. And two, I just, I was like, this can't... Because I wasn't doing the distance of cycling that right. they would do. <laughs> right. So I was like, this is not going to be... This is not healthy. But <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to see like what, like what does 600 grams of carbohydrate look like a day? Mm. Um, and it's actually quite hard to eat that. You literally, after you've eaten normal food, you have to go for sugary foods. I was eating a lot of toast with jam, you know, <laughs> chocolate milkshakes, you know, things like that. Wow. Um, but back to the back to the, the 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 thing is, it really, yeah. What it is is, it, it just comes to a point where um, where is this? There is a disconnect between people understanding the needs, and I think that, and I think this is the this is the difficult thing because. You know, climbing of all sports has a history of people doing the most insane, you know, climbs basically with a bottle of whiskey and a and a joint. Right. 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 Um, yeah. And and also there are some incredibly good climbers. I mean, I've 
spoken to a lot of sort of, you know, um, professional climbers. And when you look at their diet, it's really not great. And you're thinking, holy crap, like how have these people done what they've done basically on, you know, a couple of, of uh, Mars bars and things that every day, mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, but the, there is a difference, I think, with um, what, what I think people, people are missing is that a lot of times it's not that you need the food, right? You can get away with doing almost nothing. And that's why I don't use fueling so much. I, I'm kind of moving away from calling things fuel, like you need fuel for this or fuel for that. I don't mm. like that as a term okay. because you don't need it. You really can do it with actually nothing. But my focus now is basically saying, yes, but what if, what if you actually did provide everything? What happens if you provided everything plus more? And one of the things I talk about a lot is the, what I just call the kind of Phelps thing. And the Phelps thing is a Michael Phelps. And I use him as an example because you have this guy who was, you know, he is no doubt one of the best, if not the best athlete in the world, Olympic athlete in the world. Um, and he was training an insane amount, you know, three times a day and whatever, 50 miles, almost 50 miles a week of swimming. Um, and the only way that guy could do it was pushing, you know, five, 6,000 calories a day. It wasn't the 12,000 calories you saw in the paper. That's not true. Uh, we've actually got studies to show that it's capped. You can't go further than about six, 7,000 calories. But the point being is that he, he, with his incredible work ethic and all the other stuff, like he had massage and all this sort of stuff. But the point being is that he knew that he wanted to be the best and he had to put the time in. And the only way that his body could put that much volume of training in was this insane amount of food. Right. Mm. And so I always push people to say, why have I never had someone come up to me and say, like, how can I eat more or how can I train more? Mm. Right. It's always, and this goes back to your original point. It always goes back to the sort of like, what can people do to get away with doing the bare minimum from nutrition point of view? And I understand it because we, you know, people want to stay as lean and weight and, and as light as possible, but I'm sort of going, you know, if I was 18 years old and I had a good and I wanted to be, you know, the best in the world or wanted to send some of the hardest problems in the world. And I look at the, the standard of climbing, right? What I don't understand is, is there's two things happening. One is either this person is doing an insane amount of training and some, some, some young people do. And then they, what I don't understand is why they don't sort of start to say, well, how the hell can I recover better and keep doing what I want to do? Or the other side is like, why is somebody not saying to me, like, I just want to put more training in? Can I put more training in? Because a lot of time, if you look at the training plans, and, you know, I've seen almost all the good, good coaches out there because, um, you know, their clients come and work with me from a nutrition point of view and we work together, is that there's always, you know, it's always a typical kind of progression of training and tapering and deloading and how much volume we've got to put in and all this sort of stuff. And I always say to my clients, like, why don't you go back to your coach and, and say, can I put more volume in? Mm. Because from the coach's point of view, and it's not to knock the coaches, you know, they know far more than I do about training volume, but 
they they will always do a pattern of volume based on just the the way things are done, right? You do this much here, and you do that much, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and I'm and I'm sort of going, well, if this is how much volume you can do with your current diet, which is not great. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not great. What happens if we just were to push your calories like five, six, seven, a thousand more calories a day, right? Well, let's just say 5,000 more calories a week. Mm. Could you do more training? Could you train harder? Would you recover better? Would you recover faster? And so that's, that is really a kind of, that's a central thing or a central message of, of, of almost everything that I do is, is, is I'm saying to people, at the moment, I think the way that you eat is okay because obviously you're doing what you can. For some people, it's not okay, and, and that's why they have, you know, others, other problems or their, their performance and development is severely hampered. But for other people, I'm like, if you had the opportunity and the time in life, and obviously people don't because of families and things like that, but anyway, if you did would you be able to do more training? Would your body be able to handle more training and more volume and more climbing? And would you be able to recover? Because I think we have ample evidence from other sports, right? And this is my point. We have a lot of other sports that really push the training volume, right? And the only way that they can do that is by eating a lot more. But with climbers, no doubt, the ha the hands are the limitation. I understand that, but yeah, the fingers, finger strength. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. You know, but I'm surely there's other places that you could really do a lot more. Um, again, maybe I'm speaking rubbish, but I just I have a I have this inkling inkling that if this new generation of younger climbers coming up who are doing all this other incredible kind of specific training and and more specific type of focus maybe they're going to be the generation that were, are that are going to be like you know there is zero reason for me to stay at the same body weight when i am let's say 14 15 mm. you know and keep and keep my food intake so i don't change weight but rather what happens if i have this attitude of like other sporting athletes and be like, I'm just gonna eat as much as I can and see if my weight stays the same and then train really hard and then eat more and train hard and eat more and train hard. And who knows, maybe the, the category of weight in climbing might change. Maybe it will go up five kilos, but the power and the ability in the sport might get pushed even further. Mm. I don't know, I don't know, but yeah. Well, this is so interesting because it, it's so timely for me and it so resonates with my own personal experience. And I mean, for people that have listened to my story, my biggest hangup for years was the finger strength thing. I was mm. convinced that my muscle, I, I, I gain muscle relatively easily. Um, and I've always uh, begrudged that a little bit as a climber because I've I felt like it's not paying for itself uh, when it comes mm. to my ultimate limiting factor, which is my finger strength, right? Like the extra muscle, sure, you can do harder, more physical body movements, but if you're limited by what you can hang on to, the added weight's not really helping. Um, but what's been so fascinating for me, I, I guess I've just realized I was completely wrong about my perceived limitations of my fingers, and I've been blown away at how quickly they've adapted to 
all of this climbing volume at a heavier body weight. You know, basically mm. every single training session for the last two years, I've been wearing a weight belt relative to where I was right. at weight wise two or three years ago. And uh, that, you know, that came with negative side effects. Like I had some overuse injuries and some ten tendonitis and things probably because I, I didn't know what I was doing and I was just determined to, uh, to maintain my climbing level as my weight crept up. So I probably, if I'd had more patience, could have mitigated those things. But, you know, now on the other side of it, a couple, two or three years later, my relative finger strength is just about at its all time best ever. And, mm -hmm. and I haven't quite caught up on really small holds, but I also haven't been training that for a while. I've been focusing on, you know, one arm hangs and things like that. Um, but yeah, I was completely wrong about what my fingers were capable of. And I'm sure that, you know, if people had the fuel to just train more and most of their training is climbing training, I mean, that's that much more stimulus to your fingers and your connective tissue. So that stuff's going to adapt. Um, Absolutely. Go ahead. So you carry. No, you carry. I was just curious. I mean, I was going to, I was going to kind of tie this back in. I, I, I know that you just said, you know, you try to get away from the spreadsheets, you try to get away from the calculations and the numbers. But I think one of the things that surprised me most and interested me most in hearing you talk with Mina was how high some of your caloric recommendations were based on body weight. And, you know, I've used a number of online calculators over the years to try to figure out like, how much should I be eating? Cause that's a surprisingly mm. uh, complicated question. Um, sure. And I'd love to get into the calories in calories out thing in a minute and how, how truly complex that is. But, mm -hmm. um, but I'd, I'd just love to hear what some of your baseline recommendations are for those first two and a half weeks that you work with someone. Cause for me, you know, I, I think I made the mistake for a long time too of really underestimating my output as a rock climber because sure. most of my life was kind of sedentary. You know, I was stuck in an engineering cubicle and I was training at the climbing gym in the evenings, but it wasn't like I was climbing mountains all the time, you know? So I remember crunching the numbers and, and thinking that 2,200 calories or 2,400 calories a day was my maintenance level. And over the last year or two, I've kind of been experimenting. And I think these days I'm eating, I don't know, 2,600 to 3,000 calories a day. And my weight's the same. And I just have more energy and I have right. more output. And that has, that completely blew my mind, you know, <laughs> to, to kind of um, yeah, yeah. shift that paradigm. So anyway, um, yeah, what, what are some of those early recommendations for those first couple of weeks? Yeah, sure. So before I mention that, just to just to finish that last point on on the weight gain. Yes, right? please. So just very quickly, like one of the things I get a lot is is climbers will say that they climbed their best two to three years ago, like their best grade or the best time they climbed was two to three years ago, and they now feel like they're in a plateau because that's where most people are coming to me. They're stuck in a plateau or something. They're mm. not moving. And I and and the weight thing is always interesting because they will always give me well two things they will always give me um, the weight that they were when they climbed their best which makes sense and that was like two to three years ago the other thing is they will always give me a round number right and if and most of the time it's in kilos right okay so it's always like sixty five you know whatever seventy whatever and it, and it always I always chuckle with that and say would you be happy with you know sixty five point six. 
you know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. right? And yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, 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 you know what I mean? Because for some reason, a round number is nicer. And, and I always say, well, maybe we should just convert it to, to pounds and work in pounds, mm. right? Like, what the hell is this number? <laughs> the other thing I say to them, and I, and I think a lot of people miss this, and it's an obvious thing when you think about it, but a lot of people miss this. Do you not think that you put muscle mass on in the last three years of training, like significant muscle mass, like maybe one to two kilos? And now you're asking someone to diet you down to the previous weight. And yes, you might've put a bit of body fat on, but if you were, if you were a certain body fat and you were, let's say 65 kilos, then to lose body fat would be relative to 65 kilos, whatever lean body mass and the body fat. If you've now been climbing for say two to three years and training hard and things like that, and are now weighing, let's say two kilos more, and your body fat has only gotten up, let's say one or 2%, right? Or let's say stayed relatively the same. Mm. And now you go, now you want to diet down two kilos. That's very different. You're not, your body's not, it's not easy to diet down to a, a body fat percentage that is almost two to three times lower than it was back then. Do you understand my, yeah. what my point is in that? Got you. So, yeah. so there's that point, right? We're, we're too fixated on the number on the scale rather than lean mass and body composition and, and percentages. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And then the other thing as well is, is that why, again, why, why are you trying to maintain the same lean body mass and not, because this is the strange thing with climbing is that climbers, no doubt are, are, are people who have the greatest ability to try hard despite pain, despite whatever they, they are very sacrificial people in terms of effort, right? This is what's so great about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they are happy to try hard. Um, and that work, that sort of work ethic also goes into training. People train incredibly hard and incredibly well with a specific focus and yet they are still like, I need to stay the same body mass. And you're like, but how is, how is that going to happen? And like, where is all this training stimulus going? And this is what I find quite fascinating from a physiologically, physiological point of view is you have people who've been climbing for years and training super hard and yet are at the same body mass that they were five or six years ago. And I'm thinking, where the hell is all that training gone? No doubt they have in developed incredible skills and strength and things like that. We can see that, but it's a fascinating thing to think that the body can maintain such a very narrow margin of change, despite the amount of hours of stimulus on your tissues to grow and recover. Mm. Right. And so this is my question. What happens if you were to cap and I'm working with some climbers to actually put on lean body mass and we cap it at about 0.2, to 5% of their body weight per week, meaning that they, I try and get them to gain about 0.2 kilos a week, right? So okay. these are young climbers sort of in the sort of under sort of 25 years old. And they're like, I want to just try and become bigger and stronger. And so we try to sort of cap it at about 0.2 kilos per week. And the reason I do that is because it's like, what would be the, slowest rate of weight gain that would be most likely if coupled with a good resistance training and climbing training program result in change in lean body mass and not change in significant fat mass. Mm. Right. And that's why I kind of came up with that sort of 0.2 kilograms per week. 
um, and it's not consistent, but it's it's at least we can see it over the space of a month. And then the question is, is like, okay, so what does that look like in a year, two years? And obviously it's not always going to be going up. I'm not just trying to make people heavier, but it's a big, it's an interesting concept to say, if you are actually making a lean body mass change, then how is that developing into other areas? But, but that's, but that is that. I'd love to ask what the outcomes of that have been. Cause I'm sure, I mean, I, <laughs> despite everything, despite my own, um, positive experience, you know, gaining more muscle again and kind of leaning into some of my natural strengths in the last couple of years, I still have a lot of skepticism when I hear you say all that. Like, I'm, I'm like, really sure. the goal is to get heavier, you know, like, I don't want that as a goal. And well, I, I, well, no. So, so that isn't, so this is the, this is the thing. And this is always, I say this to, to more to, to people who are coming to me with disordered eating as well, is that the goal is not the weight gain it, it, that we don't get anything from just gaining weight, mm. right? But the goal is to see a progress in change, right? So the number one metric which I use for every single person predominantly is how are your numbers changing in the gym, right? Meaning okay. on your training plan. So for instance, I won't work with anyone who doesn't have a training plan, right? Because we have no way of knowing whether any implementation we're doing is making any difference, mm. right? So my, I'm always performance focused. You show me that your numbers are going up performance wise and whatever metric you, you want to use. And then we know that your body is adapting to the stimulus that you're giving it, right? If it's not adapting, then the first thing I say is, okay, how are you feeling? Things like libido, mood, all this sort of stuff, right? Fatigue, recovery. If those are fine and you're still not adapting, then I say, go back to your coach and get more volume or more intensity right? Or chain or something's not great, right with your training program. But that is what's driving, right? And for the younger people, and for women generally, I see, is that concurrently, there will be a change in body mass. Okay. And what's amazing as well is a lot of times people will say, funny enough, is that I'm not, I don't appear to be losing any weight, or my weight is staying relatively the same. But I'm telling you, when I look in the mirror, my body's different, I'm leaner. Mm. Right. So there is that kind of what they call typically recomposition. Yeah. And normally that's a sweet spot because if I can see their numbers are going up, if they're telling me that they're leaner, if they're saying that everything else feels great and their numbers, then I'm like, I'm not deliberately trying to make you gain weight. Mm. Right. There's no, I don't, we don't win anything from you gaining weight, but with some of the, some of the women, when I, when they say it's amazing, I'm now eating sort of four to 600 calories more per day my weight has gone up maybe 1.5 to two kilos since we started and is now just staying there. But I am now doing weighted pull-ups, which I've never done. Mm. I'm now squatting far more than I've ever squatted before. You know, my deadlift has gone up. My climbing power has gone up. I'm not getting any doms anymore. My boyfriend is getting jealous because I should be doing, you know, and all because like they basically, the, the, the payment for that was being comfortable with being two kilos heavier wow. and yeah. being a little less, a little less toned around the middle. Right. Mm. Can, can we, uh, I want to circle back to my question about sure, your, sure, your recommendations yeah, yeah. for people, but I, let's, let's tackle that point right now. Cause I am curious because right. that's so interesting. Like that is actually my exact experience right now. And I'll be totally transparent. I still have, I, I have this weird thing. I'm like conflicted internally. I have this, 
part of me that is so um, exhausted by the whole experience of being fixated on my weight and my body composition that I'm just like, fuck it. I don't care anymore. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm too tired to care anymore. Sure, sure, but sure. then there's this other part of me that's like, that's weird. I, I have like, I'm really happy with my body composition. I'm First and foremost, I'm really happy with my climbing. So frankly, I don't mm. really care what my body looks like if I'm performing the way I want to. And I, I feel like I am. Um, but visually, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I, I can see objectively that, you know, I look strong. I look, I look muscular and relatively lean and I'm happy with that. But I do have this funny thing where like, if you look at my back when I'm climbing, it's like my, my friend Charlie gave me a nice compliment. He said it was like an anatomy lesson watching me sport climb, yeah. you know, yeah. you can see all the little muscles in my back, but then my stomach is, uh, what did you say? Fluffy? Is that the word that you yeah. use? <laughs> it's a little fluffy. Yeah. And I'm like, sure. do I care? I like, is that just, is that just kind of, um, do I just have to accept that? Is this that, is that the way that it is? Is that just water weight? Is that electrolytes? Like, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? And it, it sounds like that's a really common thing. So I'm just curious what you typically see with people. So that's a great, it's a, I'm glad that you pointed out because I know one of your listeners because we've spoken and this is exactly the problem he has. Okay. Right. And we've had a lot of conversation about this and, you know, I have a very, I have a very loose um, relationship with people and dieting. And, and by that, I mean, obviously restriction for certain people is not right for whatever season of life they're in mentally, emotionally, whatever life, you know, background, all this sort of thing. I'm not anti-diet at all, right? Almost every single person I've ever worked with, I diet and do diet cycles, hmm. but you have to come to a point where the requirement to look like what you think you should look like might require a hell of a lot more work that is probably going to be detrimental for your performance, mm. right? This doesn't mean that you, you don't have to, you, do, you can't do this. You can, but there's a, there is a thing where you can't do your climbing and do this dieting thing at the same time, mm. right? So I follow and I'm in conversation with some physique athletes and I like looking at what they're doing because it's just nuts, right? When you are a small female athlete or physique athlete, who is trying to get down to stage ready body composition, it's just bonkers how little you have to eat, mm. right? And how much cardio they put in and all this sort of stuff. Obviously, you know, there's a debate about whether that's healthy and it's quite clear in most cases, it's not healthy as a long-term thing, but that's their sport, right? To get right. as lean as possible. And the men, it's even more ridiculous. But um, I think what's difficult is for, for climbers to sort of, try and understand is what are they looking at and who are they looking at and or what is this uh, rather this ideal that they have in their head of what they're supposed to look like or would rather what they would like to look like and the work that is required to do that because if you came to me and said like tom i want you to basically make me look like whatever this cover model right yeah we could absolutely do that and we'll probably get down to maybe 1,400, 1,500 calories per day, right? To get you there. The problem is, is that th that will impact on every other area of your life, right? And you won't do it because you're not gonna be on a stage and winning an award for being lean, right? Okay. And girls don't actually care. 
that's one of the commonest, uh, most common mistakes that guys make. I think we all just do it for other guys. Like w- women don't actually care if we're totally shredded. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I did. I once went out with a um, with a stand up comedian, um, and uh, she did a whole bit on my abs. Uh, <laughs> oh, that sounds like a riot. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was flattering, but it was like, it really was a sort of thing of like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, but, uh, the, 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 the point being uh, is that there is a sort of disconnect between a level of leanness and pure performance. There are times, and I've done this with people where yes, similar to sort of training, you want to have a kind of peak weight and a peaking in body composition, which would be certainly lean. But in the most part, to maintain the level of leanness that would look look like aesthetically your optimal probably means that you won't be able to do the same amount of volume of training, mm. which goes to my exact point right at the beginning. And this is the thing, is that, <clears throat> yes, you can look badass, but the funny thing is, is that that can't, that won't necessarily correlate with you being badass in terms of your performance. Right. 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 However, the caveat on this would be people who are putting training and volume of training first and ending up looking badass because they're doing so much damn volume of training. Mm. And we know these sort of pro climbers that look like that, right? These are sort of the Adam Andres, right? Yes. The reason that they look yeah. like that is because they try so bloody hard at their sport and their body has adapted to look like that. A lot of us, in terms of the sort of people who are putting the time in to try and become the whatever grade you're scaling up to, is we tend to want to look like we climb harder than we actually climb. <laughs> and and yes. it is true. Oh my gosh, yeah. Right. And it is true. I mean, you know, because. Wow. Yeah. The, it, it is difficult when you see, you know, you see some climbers who are, who literally have a Christmas tree on their back. Right. And it's just rippling and all this sort of stuff. Uh, no doubt you get to that thing where you're like, I don't know if I want to post this video on Instagram of me sending this climb because compared to other people, I don't have this anatomy map on my back mm. and it does play on our minds. I know a lot of, a lot of female climbers who will, who will, who will post a video and some, cause some of them admitted will post a video and then remove it because they didn't like the way their legs looked mm. right. Or their arm looked a little like floppy. Right. And that's, I mean, that's just, you know, aesthetic standards. We have, we have had, we, you know, it's, it is, it is what it is. Yeah. I don't know how we get out, get out of that. Um, and necessarily we will ever get out of that. Um, but to go to your point about getting lean, I think we all have to have two things. One is, is what I think is a better way to go about it is to ask yourself, is this everything that I can do with my body? Meaning training, performance, growth, all this sort of stuff. Let me focus on that as much as I can and let's see what happens with my body composition. And then the other side is the more difficult one, which is the one that I've had to deal with in the last five years, which is my hairline is looking like my dad's hairline, right? 
And it is damn annoying because I cannot do anything about it, right? And it tugs at your, whatever you want to call it, ego, masculinity, all this sort of stuff, right? Um, and I think there has to be this balance where you have to sort of come to this place where you're like, am I doing everything I can to drive my body to change optimally? And that would be in, in, improving my health and eating incredibly well and just driving, training, et cetera. And if I'm doing all that and I'm, I'm taking periods of time to see if I can change my body fat levels and things like that. But if there comes a point where you've, you're doing all that and you still have a little bit of fat around your thighs, a little bit of fat on your back or a little bit on your belly that just doesn't come off, I would question whether or not you need to just say, well, actually, that's what I look like. That's mm. my genetic disposition. And I either fight against that every time I look at myself, which you're just going to cause yourself a huge amount of grief and it's going to impact your performance and health and life. Or you just accept that, you know what, this is the way that I look. And, you know, if you really wanted to change that, you know, some people would say, well, you could, but the cost of changing that is probably totally not worth it. You're looking at dieting incredibly hard to lose one to 2% body fat. And we don't even know whether you would lose the fat there. If mm. anything, you would lose it everywhere that has already lost body fat. And most women know this, like they, they go on a diet and they lose breast tissue or basically breast fat. Their face gets very sunken in, their shoulders get very lean and they lose nothing on their thighs, mm. right? And it can be incredibly frustrating. Um, similar with guys, it can be legs, arms, you know, face, and then their, you know, midline still doesn't lose it. Mm -hmm. And the question comes in is that what would be, how much leverage do you have to do to actually get down to the level that you want? And I would say, why don't you just go the other way? Like if you don't have abs because there's fat, why don't you work on building better abs maybe mm. and then see what happens later, you know? Yeah, that is, that is so interesting. And it, you're so right. It's, it's not a linear process. I think that's something that, um, that's a lesson that I've really internalized now with this is that, you know, it's not, I'm like most the way to my optimal body composition. I'm pretty close. And it's, it's not like it takes 90% as much effort to be at my current body composition as it would to be at optimal. It's more like it takes 10% as much effort. It's just totally easy. It's dead easy to maintain where I'm at now, but I know yeah. it'd be incredibly hard to lose those final you know, a few pounds on, on my belly. So, um, luckily I'm just too tired to, <laughs> to care <laughs> at, the, at this point, like I said, but, um, absolutely. But yeah, that is, that is so interesting. Yeah. That is so interesting. I've got, I mean, I've got one other thing, which is super interesting as well. So, um, uh, I don't think you would mind, but basically I work with a, a long-term friend and an incredible climber, Aidan Roberts. And about a month ago, we did a DEXA scan for him just to see where he was because we kind of assumed him and his, his coach, Ollie from Lattice, um, were kind of assuming that he's preparing for this climb later on. And maybe there would be some time where we would taper his, his body fat down to peak him. Right. And if you eyeball him on any of the videos, um, great channel, if you're not aware, it's called wedge climbing. Um, do check that out. Amazing video. I'll be sure to link to it. Yeah. Aiden's just crushing right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he's trying Burden of Dreams, is that right? The V17? Yeah, that's his big that's his big goal. Yeah. 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 Amazing. So if you were to look at him, I think people would eyeball him and sort of go, maybe he's sort of like sub 10, maybe 10, 11% body fat currently. I mean, he's a big guy in terms of he's muscly as well. Mm. We got him tested and he was 7.8%. No way. Right. And this is what was super interesting because we sat there and we chuckled because I said, well, that answers the question then. And the question is, we have zero reason to diet you. Yeah. Right. And even the DEX, the DEX operator, who's a, you know, a clinician, he basically said the same thing. He says, no, you're in the, you're in the essential body fat range now, mm. right. Or heading towards it. And you're not going to get any performance gains by trying to move that needle lower. Now, even with a margin of error on DEXA, right. Whatever. I don't know what that is. Let's say 5%. The problem still is, is that a lot of people are going to look at certain people and assume or like we did in a general sense, assume that there is there. And, and, and I, you know, as a, as a practitioner as well, is we all do this, is that we like, well, here's a great climber. How do we polish the diamond? The polishing the diamond is reducing body weight, right? It's almost in, unanimously that would be the case after everything else is good. And the reason that Aiden climbs like he climbs is because everything else is good. Mm -hmm. he's, he's like a wunderkind, right? He's just good. Um, so you think, oh, well, I'm going to polish the diamond by cutting some of this body fat, you know, for the peaking part, right? And what, what we laughed about is that literally we came away and it was like, well, no, this is your body. We, there is zero reason to cut body fat. And mm. what was great about it is I sat with him and said, say you wanted to hypothetically drop one to 2% more body fat. This is going to take you six, maybe eight 10 weeks to do this, meaning that for 10 weeks, we're going to be eating less than you need. Your recovery is going to be bad. And I'm telling you the truth to people listening. <laughs> Every single person that I have worked with, their recovery has been hampered when we do a diet cycle. And I do diets very specifically but every single person doesn't recover as well when they're doing a diet cycle. Right? Mm. So that's a fact. Well, from the clients that I've worked with, maybe I'm doing something very wrong. So <laughs> point being with- Makes sense. <laughs> point, it makes sense. Point, yeah. being with, yeah, point being with Aiden, right? Is that what am I going to do? Basically diet him for 10 weeks to lose maybe a kilo and then what? Like lead him in, potentially into an injury, mm. right? Or he's going to be underprepared for this climb also that we could polish this diamond to change one kilo off him in terms of body fat. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's book BS. And I just think a bad that's use what of time. Yeah, absolutely. Energy. Why yeah, did you yeah. spend 10 weeks recovering and putting the best efforts that you can in? Mm. Um, so it doesn't mean that we won't do a peaking strategy, but the peaking strategy is not body fat loss. Mm. The peaking strategy is weight manipulation close to the time of the climb. And things like that. I'm curious how you explain, like, what is your explanation for the visual difference between someone like Aiden and someone like Adam Andra, who's probably also in that similar, who knows, maybe Adam's five or 6% body fat, but is it like, do people retain water differently subcutaneously in their skin? Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I've thought about that, and that would be interesting to know if there was ever if, if if Adam has ever had any stuff. I mean, the other thing is he looks quite different 
from doing silence that he did in the Olympics and all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. Um, so maybe the reason that he, maybe he was at his leanest when he was doing silence. Um, if I'm thinking of the right one, mm. um, maybe because he was just working that so hard and he had that gym nearby and all that. Um, and, you know, maybe that for him, that was optimal for him. But I, again, it's, it's a tricky thing to say because you can't, I can't suddenly say, well, Adam Andre would have climbed better if he was eating better. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, it's fun to speculate, but that. yeah. It's... <laughs> no, but it's not. It's like, it's categorically not true, right? Right, it, right. At the end of the day, it's like, can you do the work required, right? Maybe mm. he could have done it sooner. Who knows? Yeah. Right? But because at the end of the day, nutrition is literally, and this is what I always say to people, nutrition is providing the support so that you can train more. Mm. That literally is it. There's no magic to it, right? Apart from caffeine and glucose and hydration, there's no acute change that you can drive from nutrition, mm. right? But what it does is it provides the base so that you can continually day after day, put the volume in and train and recover and put the mental health. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why some climbers look like they do, and whether or not they have, they are in a position where they could be eating more, and maybe they're not eating enough. And what would it mean if they did eat more? You know, I get I get asked that question a lot. Somebody will send me a photo of so and so climber, and be like, "Do you think they're eating enough?" And I'm like, "I don't know." Yeah, it makes me wonder though. It makes me wonder. Um, that, I mean, that is the challenge. It's, it's so, I think the reason why this is such a sticky topic with climbing is that we have so many, um, like that strategy seemingly gets affirmed every time we watch a pro climber climb, Absolutely. you know, like all the best climbers look a certain way and it, it makes it really tempting to assume that that is the strategy, you know, find a way to look like that first and then you'll climb better. Um, I, I yeah. love how you frame that though, that that might be exactly backwards that, you know, we're trying to look like we climb harder than we do. I laugh because that just resonates so deeply with me. Um, and I, it's funny. I just, I just had this conversation with Dylan Barks and I love this one phrase that he put out. He just said, your body's got it, you know, like your body's going to figure it out. Just train, mm -hmm. do the thing that you need to do to climb the thing that you want to climb. Your body will figure out what it needs to figure out. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that way of thinking about it. Yeah. It, and it makes me just wonder, like, do, do those professional climbers, are they either just doing more volume and working harder than the rest of us, which yes, they probably are. And then did they also just win the genetic lottery to some extent, you yeah, know, sure. because obviously there's sure. going to be a selection bias with climbing where we're fighting gravity. And if, if you can eat enough to be thriving and really have a lot of energy and be able to train really hard and naturally be continue to be lean, um, that's going to be an advantage. But I've learned this for myself, sure. you know, like I'm only going to get my own best performance if I honor my body and give it what it needs and just let it do what it needs to do versus trying to, you know, force myself in this box that I don't really belong in. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think, and I think the, I think there is an easy answer to that and it can be an uncomfortable one in the beginning, but I think the, the easy answer is to really just try and, and try and focus on the metrics first. And what I mean by, tr and I mean true metrics, right? Everyone can fudge their relative strength by dropping weight, right? 
But what we're talking about is absolute strength. If your absolute strength is going up, despite you gaining a little bit of weight, then you are getting stronger, right? Mm. And whatever other metrics you want to use. But I think like if you can focus all of your effort in terms of improving the quality and the volume of your training over time, then I think, like you say, it's going to work itself out. And there will be times, you know, and I always say to people, you want to spend the majority of your time eating as much as you can to support quality training and increasing volume of training over time. And then, yes, absolutely, you do periods of time where you, where you come and trim some of the fat and then you put the rest of the time back into training. There is yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with dieting and losing weight for, the, for, the, for climbing as a sport. I really believe that. And I know there's a lot of talk about body positivity and you know all sizes climbing and all that. And that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But at the end of the day, you know, if you are in a competition uh, scenario, then like every other sport, there is going to be a, I don't know what you call it, but a, a demographic of body type and a selection that is going to start bubbling up, right? Because it's just natural. You're going to get some outliers. You know, Usain Bolt was the outlier in sprinting, you know, at the time. Um, but there is going to be a body type that lends itself to being world-class world championship climbers, right? But even in there, if you look at, look at people, right? The year is, I mean, climbing is a phenomenally diverse sport in terms of body composition. And yeah, each climber is. has a slightly different strength. I mean, it's a great thing, right? It's like different climbers can harness their body's ability either by pulling power or flexibility or reach or being able to do like crazy little moves or, or jumping or whatever. Right? It's a brilliant for that. I mean, that's why we'd love it. And that's why anyone can pretty much do it because like anybody can climb and they can develop as themselves in their own body going forward. Um, but at the same time, you know, yes, absolutely. By bringing your body fat down to a, a level, which would be somewhat athletic, and I'm not going to put a number on that, is you're going to get some benefit from that. And I think you just got to find where that is. But I think for, for certainly for the, which I look at sort of the, 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 the sort of up and coming young climbers who are, you know, they're already lean, especially the guys, because that's, you know, when you're a teenager, you're just already lean anyway. You can eat whatever you want and you keep the weight off. What I find with them is, is that automatically they are starting to watch what they eat. And I'm like, just leave it alone. Mm. <laughs> like you've got like the best point now. Your hormones are like, just about to peak like throw everything you can into your training and recovery <laughs> mm. like there's no reason that you should be 18 and be having tweaky fingers right like if you have twinky tweaky fingers and, you, and you're 18 years old then you're doing something wrong nutrition wise like just throw yourself in to the deep end on nutrition because it's not like you can't fix it a little bit later and fix it i do in air quotes right like people worry a lot about they're somehow going to overspill like eating too much for one month means they're going to just ruin their entire body because they're going to get fat, let's say, mm. but that's not true. And this is what I see. And, you know, you pointed this earlier, 
what I see over and over again is that you feed people more and they stay the same weight, but on higher calories. Mm. And then it answers the question. We don't have to make you heavier. What's the point of that? But if you're throwing more food in and you're recovering better and you're doing more training and your body composition is staying relatively the same in terms of weight, but you're getting better and your metrics are getting better. And maybe you are going up a little bit because your lean body mass is changing. And maybe you'll go up weight half a kilo to a kilo every month, the most, and then you will then stay at that new body weight. Cause that's the other thing. Yeah. You don't just go up forever. No, exactly. I was, I was scared of that. I remember being afraid of that. Yeah. Like, is this ever going to stop? But of course, like absolutely, yeah, you just reach a new homeostasis eventually. And that's, that is a point that I think a lot of people miss is that say in your body type now that say you are a, let's, let's just say you are typically lean climber right now and you are controlling a lot what you do and eat because of this weight gain that you're fearing or you're wanting to stay ripped. I would encourage you just to, to, to basically just try something new for let's say two months put more food in, deal with the fact that you're going to maybe lose that sort of totally shredded look. See what happens. I bet you your weight may go up two, two and a half kilos and then sit there. And that's your new balance point because your body's like, oh, I've got all this food. I'm doing all this stuff that I wasn't able to do before. And now this is my new body with this sort of food. It doesn't scale linearly like, you know, Obviously, there is a point where you put more food in and then you're going to gain excess body fat because your body doesn't need this additional energy. But it actually takes quite a bit of work to do that. Um, what you'll find is that it gets to a point where you can't really eat much more because it's just the job to eat a lot more. The reason that people are are generally unhealthy and we have obesity as, as an issue in the kind of Western world is because of the foods that people are eating are incredibly high energy and very palatable. And that's the big driver. But no one who is generally doing a sport like climbing is eating a lot of these highly palatable, high energy foods all of the time, mm. right? So you're, you're, you can't gain very much fat eating whole foods with the occasional, you know, few beers and some dessert. <laughs> like you're going to find homeostasis at about 3,200 calories. Hmm. Like good luck trying to eat more than that without shoveling in cakes and sodas and things. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. That's a good segue. I want to, I want to circle back to the calorie recommendations um, that you lead in with people. And then I'm curious to get your thoughts on macros and food quality. That was another thing, especially when you commented on uh, feeding competitors junk food before their competitions. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear how you think about food quality. Um, before we dive into all that, I'll just share one personal story real quick. Yep, please do, yeah. That goes right in line with everything you just said. And then, and then I'd like to um, shift gears, but... But yeah, it's exactly what you're just describing. My experience, you know, two or three years ago, whenever it was at my, at my lightest, I was 138 pounds and I was pretty weak at the time in hindsight. And so what happened over the next two or three years is that first I, I started eating more and I gained 25 pounds relatively quickly and my strength was going up steadily and incrementally, but at first it wasn't keeping up with my weight gain. And so I remember that being the most difficult and most concerning chapter for me, you know, was, was 
just trusting that things would work out in the end, it was really scary and, and really difficult to trust that. And I kept mm. kind of getting in this cycle of fighting against my body weight and, and kind of freaking out. But um, ultimately I just kind of decided to trust that things would work out and just keep, keep on keeping on. And what happened is that my weight, I reached homeostasis and then my weight actually came back down a little bit, still eating mm. much higher calories than I had in the past. My body recomped. I lost some body fat, I gained more muscle, and my strength over the last two years or two and a half years has continued to go up incrementally, eventually caught up with my new homeostasis. And is mm. the, the really exciting part is that I can tell it's still incrementally improving at the same rate mm. that it has over the last two years. So from here on out, it's like, it's all gravy, you know, it's all, I, I can see my relative strength. I can, I can just see the trajectory and it feels really exciting, not just with, you know, my body, but my finger strength too. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's my experience. And that's just uh, an encouraging story for people is it might take time. And, and there might be a period where you gain a little bit of weight and your strength hasn't caught up yet. But if you can just kind of sit back and watch that trajectory, I think it's leading to a really positive place. But yeah, let's, That's so awesome. let's dive into the numbers. I'm really curious when you bring someone in and you just try this experiment of let's have you eat more for two and a half weeks and see what happens. Where do you start? What are some of the things that you focus on with people? So, cause obviously this is audio only. I'll try, <laughs> I try and explain it. I'll try and explain it. Um, <laughs> so anyone who's ever done any calorie calculators, calculators and stuff are probably used to seeing you put your body body weight in, you put an estimated body fat, and then you get like a resting metabolic rate. And then you get told to use this physical activity multiplier, PAL. And it's incredibly confusing because you don't know whether or not you are active or lightly active or sedentary or, you know, <laughs> very active. And then the number you get given back is very confusing because it doesn't really. So what I did to make things simpler for myself is I base my targets of this concept of energy availability. Um, and I think it would be too long to go into all of that, but I'll, I'll give you some resources and you can link to and, and okay. we can talk about that. Perfect. But in, in general, what it is, is that it very, very briefly is that um, over the years, there was a, there was something called the, the female athlete triad. And what it was, was looking at female athletes and have with symptoms of dysregulated menstrual cycles and things like that. And what they realized was that they were, that these athletes were eating below a threshold of energy per kilogram of lean body mass. And they come up with some numbers and then that, that basically spread bigger. And they, you know, in the last, whatever, maybe 10 years, five years, they've now pulled men into it. And so they now have this overarching thing called um, relative energy deficiency in sport, red S. Mm. So anyway, the, what happened with that is they had some guidelines where they said, basically for an athlete, they need to have these numbers per, numbers of calories per lean body mass. And so what I did is I was like, okay, well, to be honest, since the demographic that I'm working with are people who in the most part are what I would say is just eating underneath what they should be, let me just start with those numbers. So what I do is, I give 40 calories per kilogram of lean body mass for men and 45 calories per lean body mass for women. Um, now, 
on my website, I have a link to a spreadsheet that you can actually look at this, or you can go to eacalc.useful.coach. Um, and it's basically a spreadsheet calculator that will help you see what your calories are per this number and also reverse it. So you can put the calories that you, you think you're eating every day and see where you get to in relation to recommendations. So what I get, so for instance, you gave me a um, total body mass of 74 kilos um, and you estimated yourself at 12%, right? So if we use that as an example, yeah, so that's like 163 pounds for people listening, 12% body fat, roughly. Yeah. So what I basically got was um, 2,605 calories if I multiply your lean body mass by 40, right? Okay. Now, in the calculations for this, the, or the way they derive the number, that 40 includes, well, let me just get the definition quickly um but basically includes what they call an an hour of moderate um training at a moderate intensity for 1.5 to 2 hours per day right okay however what i don't do is i don't say 2600 calories is your training day output Okay. That's your normal day output. So I scale high, I err upwards for people, right? So that's my basal, that's my rest day. That's what I call your basically normal recovery day. And for normal recovery days, I call those days where you're not specifically taxing your muscles. Okay. For your training day, what I do is I basically say, okay, what on average is your expenditure over the week? Now, unless you have mixed sports, like you do, you know, one day, like two days a week doing sort of climbing training, and then one day a week on the weekend, you do a massive hike or a massive amount of cycling. What I do is I basically say, okay, so you can tell me on average, how many hours of climbing do you think you do per week? So if you give me a number. Yeah, that's so, I mean... This is always what's so difficult for me to come up with because if I were in the gym, it would be so very different from me climbing in Rocky Mountain National Park, you know, where my day sure. might be a 12-hour car-to-car day, but part of that is the hike, part of that is shuffling pads, part of that is uh, resting a lot between all my tries because I'm really trying to send. Sure, so, sure, sure. Um, yeah, how should I think about okay. that? So so this is exactly the point. So this is, this is an interesting concept um, is if we are trying to put ourselves in the position of maximal food intake, because we want to try and push our bodies in a good direction, we don't have to worry about getting things wrong by being too high. And this is what I always mm. get with people. And it's not, I'm not criticizing you, but what it is, is it's like people sort of straight away go like, well, you know, I might be doing an hour, but I'm, maybe I'm doing only 30 minutes really of climbing. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want to well, overestimate you know I mean? it. Yeah. Over, exactly. Yeah, right. okay. So, and I can understand that. But in general, so what I do is just to cut the long story short is I get a, I get a kind of thing. And for you, I basically said it could be one and a half hours on a training day of actual work, right? Okay. So what I do is I look at, I look at a climbing session and I say that generally has something called a metabolic value of five. And that's about 300 and just under 400 calories per hour. 
for you of okay. actual training, right? And then resistance training for you, normally like half an hour probably for most people, which is another 200 calories or something. So what I get is basically an, a number of about 600 calories or 583, if you want to be exact, right? <laughs> okay. And I take that, right? And I take that number and I plant it on top of your 2,600, right? And I say, because if you remember right early, early, I said, it really doesn't matter what's on the spreadsheet, right? It's how it translates into real life. Is I say, on a normal day, I want you to try and get 2,600 calories minimum. And on a training day, Unless it's like a really heavy day, I want you to get about one thousand, well, three thousand one hundred eighty-eight according to the sheet. Wow. So I'd say about three thousand two hundred, maybe. Yeah, that. And what feels, I say is try. That feels it. high. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I had sent you what I'd eaten on a day where I had one of these big Rocky Mountain climbing days. And for people listening, this involves like five miles of hiking, a bunch of elevation gain and then hours and hours of bouldering with lots of rest mixed in, but a, a pretty long bouldering session as well. So it's, if anything, yeah. it, it's probably even higher than that. And I'm, I'm definitely not, I'd be surprised if I was eating that much on those days. Yeah, I can't remember what, I've got your two numbers. I think you were 160 for protein and 400 for carbs or something. I can have a look in the email, but um, however, you know, saying this, Again, these are just, these are sort of targets that are skewed slightly high. Mm -hmm. And my question to people is always, why don't you just try and see how close you get to them? Right. And I'll tell you where it normally then changes in terms of actual application. And then this will go to the point of where the calories, we need to start thinking about food and targets outside of this just total food at the end of the day. So you, what I normally do for people do you want me to talk? Do you want me to talk about talk, like stuff now to, to 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 so it makes sense what I'm going to go into next? Like yeah, macros. Yeah. yeah, if it ties okay. in, then go for it, please. Okay, so okay, <laughs> right. I will try and keep this brief because I can talk about this for ages. Um, so what <laughs> hey, we've done now? This is a long now, form podcast. No worries. It, what we've done now is I've got we've got this sort of calorie two thousand six hundred calories and three thousand two hundred calories. Right, these are just our new little benchmarks. Right. So now let's talk about let's talk about protein first, right? Personally, I don't think that men and women should really have that much of a difference in protein intake. Right? Okay. I almost think that every single person on earth should have roughly the same amount of protein, right? Unless you okay. have a significant amount more lean body mass. And the re and the reason for that for this the reason for that is thus. We know that protein for most people understand protein is as the building blocks of tissue. Okay. The amino acids get incorporated and are used to build new proteins. Okay. So everybody knows that. And from that, we kind of have an understanding of one, what is the amount of protein that is the minimum required to stay alive. And for you, that would be, um, like 0.8 times your body mass, which is like 60, 60 grams a day. Is like the right? bare minimum for survival. This is, so this is a recommended daily allowance, right? Okay. So what that, what that means is basically that you roughly to support your 
your body mass of 74 kilos and a lean body mass of 65 kilos, you roughly need a minimum of about 60 grams of protein per day, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But obviously we know that that's just not enough for growth and recovery. So what the hell is all the additional protein people are recommended for? And this is where it becomes super interesting because protein or specifically amino acids are not just the building blocks of, of muscle tissue, but are the signaling for the cascade of factors that drive growth and um, recovery and repair and things like that. Mm. So what we know from, from, from research is that there is one key amino acid called leucine, which acts like a trigger for this cascade of processes that are called muscle protein synthesis, or let's say collagen protein synthesis or any other tissue protein synthesis. And the reason that we know this is that we've done research studies where we've taken the same amount of protein, but one protein amount was high in leucine and the other one was very low in leucine. And ironically, in the climbing world, this is done with um, a whey protein versus pure collagen protein, because collagen protein on its own has almost no leucine. So what they do is they put the people in a groups and they find that the, the group that has the leucine in it does get better, stronger, you know, greater muscle mass, et cetera. The ones without the leucine don't. So we know that protein on its own is not good enough or not sufficient enough to drive this. So where this becomes super interesting is that we understand that roughly 20 to 25 grams of high quality protein and in typically high quality means having all the amino acids, including leucine, which in the most part is animal products. This is enough per meal to stimulate or switch on muscle protein synthesis, right? If you have much lower than this, you're providing the building blocks, but you're not maximally turning this dial on. Mm. If you have more than that, you might dial the dial up maybe 10, 20% more, but it caps out. It's not linear. You can't eat 100 grams of protein and have, you know, five times the effect of 20 grams of protein. Okay. Right? Yeah. So the reason I'm saying all this background, if we know that, let's say, 20 to 25 grams of protein allows you to trigger muscle protein synthesis and provide the building blocks, then we know that roughly you should have meals as many as possible throughout the day of this 20 to 25 grams. Now for the average person, that's probably going to be three meals and a post-workout shake, right? Or if you want to be really fancy, three meals, post-workout shake, and then a shake before bed. And it doesn't have to be a shake, but it could be another protein meal. But the point being is if we know that once you get to like 40 grams of protein, you're not maximally turning on muscle protein synthesis anymore. And that for the most people, your body mass being 74 kilos only needs 60 grams of protein. Then if hypothetically you were to just eat 40 grams, 40 grams, 40 grams, 40 grams, 40 grams, 40 grams, 40 grams because you can't just keep mainlining protein the whole day. It doesn't, there is a kind of what they call a refractory period which kind of ebbs and flows. But <clears throat> point being is that five meals of 30 grams for somebody of your body weight is not only plenty, but almost above 
what any research paper has shown. So mm. the research has pretty much capped out saying it looks like about 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram of body mass pretty much turns all the dials on for muscle protein synthesis. Anything above that really doesn't do that much more. So the reason I'm saying all this is this. How much of a difference is the person's body composition between being a 74 kilo human at 12% body fat or being a slightly smaller human, let's say 65 kilos, and I don't know, let's say 15% body fat. It's not a huge deal there, right? So for you, the recommendation for protein could be 25 to 30 grams of protein four to five times a day. And for someone who's slightly smaller, 20 grams four to five times a day or 25 grams, you know, four times a day rather than five. So, and this is what I try and I say to a lot of climbers um, is that you do all these other training modalities to try and drive the training adaptation. Why are you not being as pedantic with your protein intake? Why are you not saying to me, let's try and think of how many, how many times a day I could put protein in. Right. And yeah, once you get to five, there's really not, you, you, you can't really maximize it much more than that. But what I want people to get sort of passionate about, and this was being to a pro climber today, actually of a text was I have this elastic approach with, with nutrition, meaning that what you should do is when you have the facility to be really pedantic, then be pedantic with it because you have that, right? Say you're at home and you're normally traveling around in a van doing, you know, badass climbing. When you're at home, then by all means, if you can do four to five meals of protein per day, then do it because you have the ease of that, right? If you're out in a van, you don't necessarily have that ability. But if you put all this strategy in and all this pedantic stuff, you're building a really solid foundation, right? For the rest of the time. And the other thing is, is zoom out, is that we look at like acute stuff that we do. And, and certainly with nutrition, people are like, is it really doing that much? Like, is having a protein shake after my training really doing that much? I mean, I have three meals and one of my meals is like 50 grams. You know, the other meal is like 30, 40 grams. And I'm like, zoom out to a whole month of doing that. That mm. is a significant amount of not only the building blocks, but also driving the tissues to respond and recover, right? Yeah, that's 30 more times in that month that you've triggered one extra protein synthesis windows or- Abs how, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, obviously we can't measure this as an exact thing, but it's as a general approach, you can think about it. So long story short, if we're looking at that as a target, you're pretty good because what you gave me ended up being 160 grams of protein right? Mm -hmm. Which I wouldn't have a problem with because it's not like eating more protein is harmful, right? Okay. It's just expensive, right? So sometimes I see, and I mainly see this with guys, is they're pushing like 200 grams of protein, mainly omnivore. Like you wouldn't find a, a vegan vegetarian putting, hitting 200 grams of protein. That would be very hard. But um, what I normally say is I don't necessarily, necessarily see it as a problem unless it is robbing you from carbohydrate calories. Okay. So what ends up happening, right, is if we say, you know, well, put it like this. I, 
I say to every single person, minimum 120 grams of protein per day, right? Because that's basically four opportunities of 30, right? For every single person. So yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah. Minimum 120 a day. And that's very easy to do because you basically got three meals and a pro and a post-workout, right? And the reason that we think about putting protein post-workout is because not because it's such a it's a magical anabolic window, which was which was originally thought, but really just because it's a great opportunity to provide the building blocks and the stimulus for growth. Because training itself drives muscle protein synthesis, which is exactly why when you are dieting, you shouldn't stop taxing the muscles, right? Mm. If anything, if anything, what we've seen in research is that resistance training prevents muscle loss better than protein intake. Meaning that if you did no resistance training and were dieting, you know, like a ridiculous diet of like, I don't know, minus 40 or minus 50% of your calories, but did no resistance training, but ate a high protein diet, you would still lose muscle mass compared to someone who's eating slightly lower protein, but did mm. a progressive resistance training because it. it's literally use it or lose it right to the body. So what we end up here is basically for you, if you ate 160 grams of protein, that ends up being 2.2 times your 2.2 grams per kilogram of your body mass which I don't have a problem with, if that is your lifestyle and you like that, and that's the foods that you enjoy, then I'm not going to change that. There's no reason for me to change that. Okay. So that's, that's good. So what I've got now is this on your normal day, basically we look at carbohydrate and very briefly, the way that I see carbohydrate is to wave it between normal days and training days. And I have this concept of rock and rocket fuel, which is basically glucose is the rocket fuel. Do we need to eat glucose? No, the body can handle a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. It can, it can spare glucose where it needs to. It can move in things like ketones and all this sort of stuff. But if we put this sort of high octane fuel into the body, it can do a hell of a lot more, right? So there is a difference between me sitting here and us doing a podcast and us going and doing some high effort, high concentration, high focus, muscle taxing work. And that's really the way that I do things. So on normal days, you eat less carbohydrate. On, on training days, you try and push and use it as a lever, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So for people, what I normally look at is like, if, if I see someone who is just eating a normal, relatively high amount of carbohydrate the whole time, those sort of people tend to not be, well, a lot of them tend to drink a lot of coffee as well. Um, and what I do is I say, right, let's pull the carbohydrate down to about sort of 200 grams a day on your normal day, which for most people feels like they have to pay attention to the carbs. Mm. Some people can go down to 150 if you're doing sort of a paleo type diet or something, it's very easy for you to go down to 150 or even lower. Yeah. Any vegan vegetarians, that's nearly impossible. Like you can't go much lower than 200. So let's say for you, because you're more sort of, I think, paleo type inspired, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. So what is your lowest carbohydrate that you think you've eaten before without trying super hard? Uh, without trying super hard? Um. 
I don't know. I mean, I've experimented with a lot of low carb stuff. I'm, I'm sure there was a period when I wasn't in the keto sphere anymore, when I, when I was still only eating 100 to 150 grams per day, because I was getting all my carbs from, you okay. know, a, a couple pieces of fruit per day. Right. And So let's yeah. say, so if we're working together, what I would do is I would leverage the fact that you've practiced that. So I would say, okay. well, let's, let's sit at 150 grams. Um, you know, you're basically so people listening. I just, I basically eat paleo plus rice these days. Nice. <laughs> so I, I would just eat less rice on rest days Okay. and stick to more of a paleo model. That's, that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So what we get here from your calories in this normal day is roughly like 160 grams of protein, roughly 150 grams of carbs, roughly. And then it ends up the fat balances out the calories. So for you, it's about 150 grams of fat. Okay. Right. Why is it a nice round number of, I don't really care. Like, I honestly don't care. And this is the thing, like, who knows whether the banana you eat is 28 grams of carbohydrate or 25 grams of carbohydrate. <laughs> so I say to people, like, we've done this, and my spreadsheet looks quite cool. It's all color-coded and all this sort of nicely <laughs> boxed, right? And I say uh -huh. to people, like, it, it really doesn't matter. I'm giving you some numbers. I don't care whether you eat 154 grams of protein or 162 grams of protein just try and eat in this sort of range, right? Mm. And see the foods that would take you there. So that's your normal day, right? A non-muscle taxing day. So what I'd normally say is that on average, I would try and, and this is the new concept, which I don't think anybody's ever talked about. And I may be wrong with this, but this is my, my take. And maybe I'm giving away all the good stuff and people won't work <laughs> with me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, what, I, what I am now doing is I'm, I'm thinking in terms of windows of time of what the body is doing with the food that you're giving it. And so what I do is I now saturate the training session or the climbing session with carbohydrates and taper mm. the carbohydrates out the rest of the time. Because in my mind what I have found with people is that when you put the body, cause I remember I'm thinking from this, this, whatever we call it, rubric of high energy availability. If we can send the signal to the body during the training session, that literally energy is unlimited. We have loads of energy coming in. There's loads of energy in the muscles. Do what you want body, because I'm there to support you. You will just push out more training volume and better quality and better focus. And the stress on the nervous system is going to be lower because you just have this high energy availability. You will be recovering before you even finish the session because you have this exogenous carbohydrate source coming in, right? And what this looks like is basically really pushing things. So saying you've got a two hour gym session, you're putting sort of 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate right at the beginning of it. Then you're doing sort of 60 upwards of carbohydrate during the session. And then towards the end, you basically have sort of 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate in there. Plus now you put a protein dose in, right? And what you've done is if an average climbing session is about sort of 200 to, sorry, 300 upwards of calories, you're putting like four, 400, 500 calories into the training session, right? So I sometimes will push maybe 120 grams of carbohydrate into my training sessions, right? Um, and that's normally in the, in the 
in the scope of like something uh, like a banana on the way to the gym. And then when I get there, like a sort of muesli bar type thing. Um, so both of those equal about 60 grams. And then my favorite thing now is sort of pita breads. So I eat sort of anything from two pita breads to half the packet, which could be like six pita breads. Now those are 30 grams each. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is that they're just, they're, they're good to eat with chalky fingers that, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. just there in my bag. They're kind of dry. You know, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but I mean, you could eat whatever you want that feels comfortable. You can also drink, you know, glucose as, as either fruit juice. I, I recommend people do like half water, half fruit juice, a pinch of salt. That makes a nice sports drink. Hmm. But the point being is that you end up sending this massive signal that you have loads of energy to be used throughout the training session. And then what I do is I say, okay, now that you've covered all of that in that training, and then you put that protein dose at the end, you can taper your carbohydrates right down for the rest of the day, depending on what you're doing, right? And depending on the length of the session and depending on what you're doing tomorrow and all that sort of stuff, right? That's the coaching element is to figure out how these little bits fit in with a person and their schedule and stuff like that, right? So it's not a just hard and fast rule. But what I find is that the old model generally is eat some carbs in the morning to fuel the day. Then you eat a little bit of carbohydrates to fuel your session. And then at the end, you eat your recovery. And then you should put all your carbohydrates after your training to recover your muscle glycogen that you've spent during the session. Right. Right. My idea is to say, well, why don't you just saturate the whole session with carbohydrates? So you're basically using most of the carbohydrates that you're putting into the body. Because we know that when you eat carbohydrates, you upregulate your use of carbohydrate, both um, exogenously and your muscle glycogen also gets upregulated, right? You're just mm. in this high flux, high carbohydrate state. You've just put your body under this incredible amount of stress. You've buffered that stress with high energy availability, really strong signal for work quality, for recovery, et cetera. And then at the end of the session, you have a little bit more carbs. That will take you maybe for another hour, two hours of energy availability. And then the rest of the day, you just drift into the aerobic fat burning beauty that is just low carbohydrate all the way going. And if you kick carbohydrates out in the night, you can basically be, say your normal gym session ends at, I don't know, eight o'clock, right? So you've had most of your carbs over that period of time, eight o'clock, you finish your gym session, you have dinner, it's a low carb dinner. By about 10 o'clock, you're already at a low basal glucose level, right? And you will be fast in a quote unquote fasted state all the way through from eight, let's say 10, 10 p.m. all the way through until breakfast, right? And then you start your day with a strong signal to be well-fed, right? You don't do the 16-8 fast. You do the opposite. You basically try and fast in the evening rather mm. than sending your body the signal that there's still no food and it's lunchtime, right? And what I'm finding is that people get really good body composition this way because it's not that they're doing low carbs throughout the day. They're packing all their carbs in the front of the day, breakfast, lunch, their training session, post-training session, they, they, they taper their carbs all the way down. They make sure they have their protein doses. So high protein dinner and maybe another protein shake before bed. 
So you have strong signaling for, for, for protein synthesis, but you don't have that high flux energy from mm. the glucose because why would you need all that extra glucose? Because it's not like you've depleted all your glycogen stores because you've put that glucose into the session. Um, mm -hmm. And also if you've been eating glucose previously in the day and you do this repeatedly, because say you train five to six days a week, you're always going to be eating a high amount of carbohydrates. So you're not going to be depleting, but then you can spend a very nice long chunk of the evening, which should be at a lower energy state, being in that sort of quote unquote fat burning zone. Mm. I just realized I'm rattling off. <laughs> well, this is this is fascinating, and I was actually really curious to get your take on this because you had mentioned that you were a fan of the low carb dinner, and I've explored this topic exhaustively, and it's fascinating how. Um, I mean, maybe it's just one of those situations where there's just a lot of different ways to crack an egg. You know, that there's a lot of different things that work for different people, or. Um, maybe your body can adapt because our bodies are amazingly adaptable, but you know, there's this very compelling community of people that are all in on this carb backloading thing, yes, right? Yeah, like the idea yeah. is that like you use your glycogen that's already stored in your muscles throughout the day to fuel your exercise. You don't need any more than that. And then you just eat a massive pile of carbs in the evening and replenish all that. And that's for the next day. And I, it makes sense you know, theoretically, but I've tried that. And, um, I feel like I have such better energy when the carbohydrate is like the exogenous carbohydrate is there in my system when I need it for the training. And I don't know why, I don't know if that's a personal thing or my body or, or whatever else, but, um, but there, I mean, there's also this whole, you know, there's a very significant number of people who I respect as well that are much more in line with everything you're describing. Like let's, fit our carbohydrate or target our carb carbohydrate intake around our activity. Cause that's where, when we're going to use it. So no, the, yeah, this is all, this is all really, really fascinating. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to find, I can't remember his name. So, I mean, I was around when, um, um, what's his name? What is his name? He does John Kiefer. So when John mm. Kiefer came out with this, so I've been around the, 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 this industry for ages. I mean, I was one of the people who read, um, is John Kiefer the carb backloading guy? He was the original carb backloading. I mean, got it. There's, there's people, bodybuilders before who did it before. Okay. Um, but okay. he was the one who popularized it. Um, uh, but I mean, I was, you know, he was back in the day. This was post, you know, Rob Wolf coming out with um, the paleo diet and things like that. I mean, I was mm. in, in, back then it was called Paleo Hacks which was a forum and it had people like Carmel Patel who went on to um, help do examine.com um, had art Devaney. It had all the kind of old people wow. who were talking about this. Um, yeah. who kind of went on their different ways and things like that. Um, but I remember when that came out and yes, that was the, that was a big thing. And what, what you do notice is if you do do that, the next morning you look shredded. And the reason that you look shredded is because you put a whole chunk of glycogen into your muscles overnight and you wake up and your muscles are just pumped. Mm. And absolutely it works in terms of aesthetically. Th my worry with it is that we have quite clear data to show that you are more insulin sensitive in the morning, right? And less insulin sensitive towards the, the evening. And also we know that there is a kind of circadian pattern, right? And 
it seems odd to me to put a huge hunk of energy in at the end of the day, just before going to bed. Um, and certainly your body is going to have to deal with those carbs or deal with the glucose flux differently than, or the, it will be dealing with the glucose flux differently in the evening than it does in the morning. However, if you do carb backloading precisely, then yes, you'd be training very hard and depleting your muscles of glycogen. Hence, when you put the carbs in, they would be sucked up, quote unquote, into the muscles. So it probably isn't a problem, but I don't think it's a healthy way of going about it, um, to be honest. And I think it's a bit of a hack that really, at the end of the day, is not going to make a big difference. Um, okay. There is enough data and research and evidence to say that some people when they do a low carb dinner will not sleep as well and they may wake up. This happens in low carb um, folks and keto folks. Mm. And the reason behind that is that your brain will notice at a point in the night that you are quote unquote in a glucose deficit and basically your adrenaline will and cortisol will basically kick you out of sleep and then you'll drift back again. So that probably is related to overall carbohydrate intake across the week and your training load. Okay. Um, and for some people, it might just be the way their body is. And then that final meal of the day might just require a little bit of carbohydrate. I mean, it could be 60 grams of carbohydrate or 30 grams, but just enough that it, it kind of raises your glucose and restores that balance so that overnight, your liver predominantly is going to have a sense that it has enough glucose and not wake you up. So that is a caveat with a low carb or kicking carbs out of dinner is check how your sleep is. Um, if you are waking up, then try just putting a little bit of carbs into that dinner meal. Okay. But it sounds like for most people, if you get your overall carbs right and match your activity throughout the day or the week, um, that takes care of that for most people. I think so. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you two questions. Um, first, I guess three questions actually around carbohydrates. Um, the first couple, you know, if I'm, if I'm at 150 grams of carbs on rest days, it's so yeah. funny because two years ago I would have been horrified that that seemed so high. And now I'm like, well, actually a lot of people seem to think that's pretty low. So, um, do you think there's any benefit to, going even higher on that as far as recovery and restoration on a rest day. And then I'm curious how you would, what the strategy would be to eat those carbs throughout the rest day. Like, would mm. you spread them out? Would you front load them, eat most of them in the morning? How would you think about those two things? Yeah. So, um, again, if we're thinking about thinking about putting the body in different states, um, and, I would say, think about food ahead of time, meaning what am, I, what am I eating now that is going to change what I'm doing later? So if, for instance, tomorrow you're going to be doing some hard training, then it's probably worth making sure that you have kind of topped up your glycogen stores by scaling your carbohydrate up slightly more on your recovery day, mm. right? Um, and that's easily done within the calorie range if you're trying to keep in calories. Because I mean, you have a, in your example, you have 150 grams worth of fat to play with. So yeah, that's a lot. You know, that's a lot. You know, mm -hmm. so easily you can 
So for this, when people don't watch the fat intake, they always end up about 75 to 80 grams a day. It's amazing. It's like every single person I've ever looked at their food journal. I laugh every time (laughs) I look at it. I'm like, it's amazing. It's just always 70 to 80 grams. Wow. Um, (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah. I would just swap out some macadamia nuts with some more fruit or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's a way to think about that ahead of time is like, how am I bolstering my body or recharging or whatever you want to call it. This is why I don't like the fueling thing, right? If you, if you use the fueling thing, you're constantly thinking about the energy in the immediate window. Like what do I need to eat breakfast to fuel the rest of the day? Mm. I think of it more of like, how are you changing the state of your body? Like here's a prime example. It's very unlikely that you need more carbohydrates at the end of the day than you do during the at the beginning of the day. Why? Because most of the food that you're eating across the whole day leading up to dinner is going to be used to produce glycogen, even protein, right? Because your body is in a state where it's constantly wanting to recharge its stores. So by the time you get to dinner, unless you've trained really hard and put carbohydrates in, like the worst time for somebody to eat a beer and pizza and ice cream is right at the end of the day because you have the least need for those high glucose load, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, that sidetracked me there. Um, so what I'm saying is that if, if depending on what you're doing the next day, you can scale your carbohydrate up on your normal day. That's fine, Okay. right? In terms of spreading the carbohydrate, I would just do it um, how you like because it's such a small amount. It's like 150 grams, so it could be three meals of 50 grams, right? or okay. one meal of 80 and the rest there. Um, but again, you might like to keep the habit of having a low carbohydrate meal. Um, and again, the reason I'm doing this is for two reasons. The, the reason I'm waiving carbohydrates from normal days and training days is for two reasons. One is to try and develop this concept of metabolic flexibility, meaning that we want the body to be able to switch between high glucose power output and a low glucose quote unquote, fat burning state, right? We don't want to be constantly in a high glucose load because that's going to be unhealthy. And it's debatable whether it's healthy or not to be in a very low glucose state the whole time. Probably it is safer if we're going to say healthy in inverted commas to be in a keto diet than it is to be in a high carbohydrate diet all the time. I think Mm. that's probably quite clear. Um, So what we're trying to do is get the body to be able to dial up and down because carbohydrate or glucose is really the metabolic switch. As soon as you put glucose into the system, the body will use that glucose until it's gone and then it will switch back to fat burning, right? Mm, Yeah. So there's that concept, waving the carbohydrates in and out. The other concept is more and more research is showing that it appears to be healthy when we're doing this concept of time-restricted feeding or rather having most of our calories in a shorter window of time so that the body is put into a, let's call it a basal glucose state, so normal stable blood sugar, and then having that longer fasting period. So there's a lot of talk about this TRE or time-restricted eating. It gets mixed up with intermittent fasting, but if we focus really on what the main driver, it's basically saying, all the food for the day is in a smaller and smaller window so that the body can be into a fasted or postprandial state for a longer period of time. So part of a hack on that is if glucose is the main metabolic switch on all of this, 
And this is exactly why people are leaning towards things like ketogenic diets, because they're trying to eat as much as they can while keeping that glucose switch off. Mm. This is why I like this idea of cutting the carbs out at, the, at dinner, is that you basically are having a normal schedule, if possible, try and squeeze your, your dinner earlier. But what you're doing is you're having a, a lower carbohydrate, lower sort of energy flux dinner so that you have this time-restricted eating type style without having a very squished. And again, what it's trying to do is put your body into two states. When you're trying hard, when you're, when you're asking your muscles and your nervous system to maximize its output, then you put that high energy yield in, that glucose availability, high energy availability. And then for the rest of the time, as long as you're putting that protein dose in to trigger a recovery, and as long as your total quality of your diet is good, meaning fresh produce, lots of vitamins and minerals, right? And all these other sort of um, factors that you find in plants and, and, and animal products, then the rest of the time you can be in that quote unquote, fat burning, low basal glucose state, recovery state, um, possibly driving into a fasted state early on in the night where things like autophagy will kick in, other recovery processes, ketone bodies will rise, which are anti-inflammatory and all this. And that's, that's really how I'm, that's the kind of idea behind the, the flux that I do. Got it. So that's that just answered perfectly my third question, which was, I was just curious if you had any concern about this very regular, very con like kind of constant feeding philosophy, because there is so much focus and interest nowadays on time restricted eating and fasting and things like that. Um, but it, but I get it. It sounds like you're you're trying to find a way where you can thread, you know, optimal performance and giving your body what it needs for high output, and then kind of using this hack of a low carb dinner to still get the protein for this muscle protein synthesis, um, but have a little bit more time in the day where we're not turning on that metabolic glucose switch yeah. and giving our body time to just kind of yeah, settle, yeah. burn fat, whatever. So, I mean, I don't have yeah. a big problem with people who skip breakfast. Um, certainly with people who I'm doing a diet cycle with, um, they tend to do well by skipping breakfast, hmm. mainly because they don't have so much food and it's very easy to go from a fasted period overnight into not eating and then having, you know, lunch. And once you're down to low calories, it's quite difficult to do more than maybe two meals and a post-workout mm. meal, right? Um, you know, if you spread, you, there's no way you can do five meals, you know, proper meals. So it ends up being, and this is one of the things, the fact is if you were trying to get lean, it ends up being a lot of protein shakes. It could be three protein shakes a day. You know, mm. depending on your body size, if you're, if you're a bigger climber, like say you're sort of in the 25% body fat range and you're, you've started climbing and that's the reason that you wanted to lose weight, then you can eat a lot of food because you're a heavier person. But if you are a, you know, a, a good climber who, who's already very lean, um, <clears throat> no doubt your calories are going to come down to maybe 1,600, you know, on a normal day and on a training day could be 2,500 day calories depending on the person and where they are body fat range and you know so um that for a quick thing on food quality i mean yes you end up drinking a lot of protein shakes because they are protein without any additional other calories so it's very easy to control 
is that healthy? It becomes a point where yes, you are you are going to be at having less opportunities for vitamins and minerals, right? So um, typically, I say to people, then have a you know obviously keep the the foods that you do put in, um, keep them as high energy uh, high nutrient density as possible. That's very easy with animal products. If you don't have animal products, then you're definitely going to have to look at one getting the freshest vegetables you can with the calories you can, but even then it's probably not going to be enough and you will have to supplement. Mm. Um, an easy, and an easy win for that is a multivitamin. I mean, if you're doing a diet cycle, getting a really good multivitamin, I don't think is a problem, right? There's a lot of pushback on multivitamins, but you know, I'm more about compliance. It's hard enough dieting already mm. to try and know that you're supposed to take three different pills because you want to isolate these nutrients and making sure that you have like an avocado and Buck choy, <laughs> take a multivitamin. You know, this is a short period of time. You know, make it make it make it easier on yourself. Yeah, you know? yeah, better living through science, that sort of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, I want to jump in and ask you a listener question. Actually, I, I got two listener questions for, for you, and the first one was from Carl, and actually, Carl just recommended that I send you my uh, my diet log and okay, have a conversation yeah. about that. So thanks, Carl. That was a really cool idea. And, and we did dive into that. Um, I have a question from Tyler. Uh, Tyler writes, hi, Tom. I'm curious what your opinion is of various types of protein powder. I try to get most mm. of my protein from real food, but I get about 30 grams per day of about 130 grams total per day from powder for economic, ethical, and practical reasons. This is in the form of plant protein, admittedly mm. with artificial flavoring. So what are your thoughts on protein powders, the different forms and artificial flavoring? Yeah, so um, easiest thing is to understand is that in general, protein powders are isolated protein. So depending on the level of processing, they're gonna have less and less other nutrients. So the, the, the cheapest would be a, a whey protein concentrate that tends to have other, still retain some of the milk fats and some of the milk carbohydrates. Um, uh, I don't know what a vitamin mineral profile of a protein powder is. I don't know if it has any. Um, so that's a consideration there. When you become more refined, like a whey protein isolate, then it has less of those milk fats and milk sugars. Um, and the reason I point that out is that we have some research to say that the milk fats in dairy can be beneficial for us. Mm. Um, so you're kind of robbing yourself to get pure protein. Obviously you have other isolates like beef isolate and egg isolate and things like that. But when it comes to a plant-based protein, uh, this is, this is what I take myself because, um, I eat more plant-based now. Uh, well, I just don't eat meat now. Um, what you're trying to look for in a plant-based protein is um, the leucine content per scoop, which I explained you know, earlier. Mm. So that would be the key thing you would look at. Most protein powders now manufactured take this into consideration, and they might, for instance, include additional branch-chain amino acids, which are the leucine, isoleucine, and valine, right? So they're now kind of fortified, but what I tend to see sometimes is that you get the more like the brands that are trying to be very eco-friendly and very um, ethical, they might do like an isolated pea protein in a fancy packet. 
the problem comes in is that per scoop, it might not really give you close to two grams of leucine. And that two grams, grams of leucine is really what is the kind of trigger for that muscle protein synthesis. Mm. This is why I, I say 20 to 25 grams of high quality protein because it contains roughly two grams of leucine. Okay. Um, so for instance, what I do is I actually carry around, I'm kind of a geek like that. I don't have it on me now, but in my bag, I have a little um, uh, a pot that I used to have um, peppermints in and I have one gram leucine tablets. Oh, wow. Okay. And what I do is when I go to the cafe or to a restaurant, uh, obviously I'm not going to be downing half a protein shake to try and get my two grams of leucine. What I'll do is I'll have my, you know, big lentil salad thing or whatever. And then I'll, I'll take two grams of leucine as tablets for that meal, Okay. Um, which might push that meal up to say three grams of leucine, depending on the quality. Um, every now and then I'll have a bit of dairy, but I, I try and I'm trying to move away from dairy more. And dairy is a very high leucine mm. um, food. So if you are having a, a vegetarian type meal with cheese um, or either dairy, you probably are getting quite a good dollop of leucine. But to his point, I have no problem with protein powders. Protein powders cannot replace a whole protein meal, of course, because you have these other things. Um, certainly it cannot replace the nutrient density of animal proteins in terms of the other factors that you get with, with animal proteins like choline and creatine and um, methionine and all these other amino acids. Um, but where protein powders can be incredibly useful is for vegan vegetarians. And I say to almost everybody, there is nothing wrong. And I recommend it that if your lifestyle is to have a bowl of oatmeal with some nuts and bits and pieces, and for you to try and increase your protein in that meal to get to 25 would require you to eat some, you know, scrambled tofu with that. And that just seems like a lot of food. Just have half a protein shake use protein shakes to basically bolster the protein content of your meal to bring up each of your meals to be, you know, that 20 to 25 grams. It's a very easy method to do it. Or if you're really geeky, you can try and get leucine tablets, but don't try and get leucine powder because that tastes terrible. It's very, <laughs> very bitter. I mean, if there's, I mean, I have a big, I push back against BCAAs a lot. Um, I was going to ask about those actually with all this talk of leucine. So yeah, please continue. Uh, so <laughs> I think I've made a few enemies in the supplement <laughs> world because I really, I go on a town to BCAAs. But in general, I taking isolated branched chain amino acids does almost nothing. And we've even had studies to show that by taking them could actually deplete uh, muscle protein. Because what you're doing is that you're sending, if you took an isolated, if you just took, say you haven't eaten much for the last three or four hours and you took a typical scoop of BCAA powder, you know, as a drink, what you do is you're sending a signal to your body to ramp up muscle protein synthesis by the leucine driver, uh. right? but you have provided no amino acid building blocks apart from two, which do very little. And if anything, they just get burnt for energy. Mm. So what happens is then one study they actually showed a decrease or a net loss of protein, meaning that the body basically tried to build proteins and then pulled it from other tissues to try and, and it actually ended up having less total body protein. Mm. Don't know how they did that, but it kind of makes sense. So BCAAs, 
everywhere that someone would be thinking that BCAAs would be a good idea, I would say save your money and buy a whole protein source, a whole protein supplement, right? Unless you have a big tub of BCAAs lying around, then what I would use is I would use them with your meals to pull the leucine up. Okay. Because BCAAs tend to tend to taste pretty good, like in terms of the flavors that they do. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's nothing wrong with having, let's say, a lighter protein meal. And lighter, I mean, let's say 15 grams of protein. And then having a scoop of leucine, a scoop of BCAAs, which would bring that protein or the leucine up by, say, three grams. And you'd still be at 15 grams of protein, but that would be of use. But if you're buying a supplement for protein, then buy a protein supplement. Mm. The cheapest you could do would be an essential amino acid supplement because that has the essential amino acids, not just three of them. So okay. in general, and I'll say this because I like to poke, I think any supplement company that's still say, selling BCAA powder, I think is conning their clients. Mm. Oh, dropping the hammer. <laughs> I want to I want to ask you another question about uh, food quality, and this comes back to Tyler's question about artificial flavors. You know, you've you've given us your general outline or just how you think about it. You know, try to get whole foods for the most part and fill your diet with those as much as you can. It's okay to use protein powders to supplement things like that. Um, and earlier you were talking about your experiments with sugar and jam and toast and things like that. So it sounds like you're a little bit more flexible than you know, then for example, people that I look to in the paleo world that are trying to remove all grains and and things like that and seed oils Mm. and stuff. I'm just curious, like, do you have any, any foods that you find, uh, do cause trouble for people or that you try to recommend people avoid, or is it just, you know, make the bulk of your diet from whole foods and then fill in as needed? How do you think about, about food quality kind of more globally? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, I, I was paleo back when Rob released his book. Um, and I still think that in a general sense, the idea of paleo or let's say Western A price, um, those two kind of run side by side um, or the perfect health diet by um, Paul Jaminet, that is the original guy who kind of did paleo 2.0 basically. Mm. And for, um, for people listening, that might be just like fruits, vegetables, nuts, meat, yeah. and, you know, one ingredient foods, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Whole foods. And, you know, Western A. Price would push on uh, including things like dairy. Okay. Um, paleo tended to be pulling dairy out. I think the thing is, is that everyone kind of knows that bread and pasta are kind of like they're really only good because they're quite high in protein if the protein doesn't bother you, i.e. the gluten. Mm. Um, but all of them are fortified because they are generally low nutritious as, as a thing. And so the question comes in is that when you look at it as a, as a food stuff, it is incredibly cheap and quite filling and very tasty. I mean, I pretty much have a croissant every single morning. <laughs> um, but it's apart from that, they're really not great sources, right? Like, as far as like nutrient density, nutrient density, yeah, you know. Okay. And so, if you're focusing your your life around, um, you know, fresh produce, colorful vegetables, and trying to eat a kind of variety of grains, buckwheat, quinoa, you know, 
um, rice, things like that. These are, you're going to get a greater diversity of fibers and you're going to get a greater diversity of different nutrients that these different things contain. If you're eating a lot of bread and pasta, you're probably not getting that sort of fiber density and the other nutrients, mm. um, depending on how fortified it is. I don't have a, you know, I used to be the kind of, when, when the gluten scare came out, you know, I kind of jumped on that bandwagon for a bit. And then I realized, you know, life is short and croissants are something <laughs> to behold. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try eating croissants again. And if I get really bad gut, then I know I need to kick out white flour. And that never really happened. Well, not that I huh. noticed. Okay. And I thought maybe I'm going to lose two years of my life <laughs> by eating croissants. But, yeah. you know, maybe it's the quality. I don't know. Yeah, the great so news is like you'll a... never know. You'll never know what it is. Exactly. Maybe it's the stress from Reddit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So I think, I'd let, I, just, I mean, I always say in my docs, documentation and stuff, I put um, breads and pastas and wheat products at the bottom of the carbohydrate list, right? Okay. The bottom being that? The low, like, don't bother. Like, is, okay. like that's the last one you should go for. Got it. Right? Got it. Yep. So if you're going to go for, for carbohydrate sources, go for potatoes, whole foods, squashes, pumpkins, you know, tomatoes, other vegetables that you can eat a, eat a heap of mm. and still, you know, control that. Um, so, so yeah, so there's that. The dairy is an interesting one. Um, for some people, dairy does not work. You know, I've heard so many times the eczema issue with dairy – I, mm. I don't know if there's such a, a link to it, um, but for some people, dairy doesn't agree with them. Um, so that tends to be moved out, but then it depends on the type of dairy. So some people can't do milk, but they can do cheese. And that might be the, the casein versus the, the whey fraction of, the, of dairy. Um, but I think most people understand that really like, fresh whole foods is absolutely the way to go. Uh, the other one that gets talked about is the, is the seed oils. And yeah. paleo used to be very anti-seed oil. Um, but actually, when you look at the research, it's a little bit confusing because seed oils are generally polyunsaturated. Um, and you know, there's a sort of now a kind of how come some polyunsaturated are working very well and others are not. So it's kind of debatable, but the easiest way to think about it is like, if you have an oil that you're going to be cooking in, almost everyone nowadays can get an olive oil. Like, right. It's not, unless you're doing something like very high heat, you know, like you're doing some tempura or something, then, you know, frying it in some corn oil or canola oil is not going to kill you. Right. The, the point being is that you shouldn't be eating foods that are deep fried in the same oil over and over again, um, or eating okay. or eating snack foods that are basically just jacked up with, you know, these sort of oils. And that goes to the same point thing again. It's like whole foods, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, I tend to say to people, and especially if you're doing a diet as well, you can you can cook stuff in oil. It doesn't mean you have to pour it over everything, right? Mm. You know, you can cook a, if you wanted a steak, you could cook a steak in some oil and, and whatever, and then add a bit of butter at the end or, you know, take the steak out, drain it, and then use a really good fresh olive oil or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, and here's, a, here's an interesting side thing. So for my own conscience, I kicked out meat products or basically meat um, back in March of this year 
and I try to limit dairy as much as I can. Eggs I will have if I buy them, but the only time I'll have eggs or dairy is normally if I'm in, in a restaurant or cafe that has made the food with eggs or dairy. Um, but I okay. won't choose, I won't go out of my way to buy cheese products or anything like that. Though I take that stand on a conscious level, I absolutely think that a diet that is most beneficial for human flourishing is probably a diet that contains animal products okay. because they are incredibly replete with nutri nutrients. And there are some nutrients that are difficult to get if you, if you remove um, animal products. Things like choline is a, is a good example. Um, I mean, all the other ones people know, like B12, iodine, zinc, copper, right? Methionine, potentially. So it's a difficult conundrum because it pisses me off. It's almost, I almost feel like I want to go back into the matrix because <laughs> once I did enough research about just where my food comes from in the most part, it's like the blinkers came off and I just can't do it now. Mm. I find it very difficult to go back. This is not to say that somebody asked me the other day, like if I went back to South Africa, um, which is where I, I grew up, and I went to like a game reserve and somebody served me, you know, um, uh, you know, springbok or something, I would probably eat it if I had the stomach to, because, you know, I don't know if I would now, but because the difference is that that springbok has run around being a springbok mm. right, in a massive game reserve and has done all the life of a springbok and just happened to be shot by a, by a, a hunter, right? That's very different from where I'm going to get my meat mainly in the UK. Mm. And that's really where I take a stand on it. Um, so I'm not, I don't think I'll ever be vegan, but I think my lifestyle will look more and more veganish as I go through it. And the more practice I have eating legumes and things like that, the better, which draws me around to the grains thing as well. I try and encourage people to use beans and legumes as a carbohydrate source but I'm absolutely aware that this is something that is very problematic for people, especially people who can't handle, quote unquote, the FODMAPs, um, okay. which I can't remember the full <laughs> abbreviation. Right. <laughs> Basically, plant fibers. Yeah. Plant, yeah. plant fibers for some people are a real problem. And that's why I always say to people, try and introduce more things like beans and legumes. You know, just have a few tablespoons of beans with your meal and start to get your gut used to those types of fibers because i do believe that's beneficial i don't take the stance which tends to come from paleo which is this sort of anti-nutrients are a massive problem they mm. totally exist yeah they totally exist right and maybe they're causing a level of nutrient deficiency if you're only eating the same foods over and over again um things phytates and things like that are binding to different minerals and stuff but in general and, yeah yeah in general like a food diversity and a diversity of eating you know is good and you know this mythical unicorn of the mediterranean diet which doesn't exist anywhere in the world but is a quite a good <laughs> idea right like <laughs> basically sort of fresh whole foods you know served by nonna on a big table with everybody you know drinking red wine and going hoppa you know that sort of thing whatever <laughs> so you know i think if you can eat like that 
most of the time you're going to do well. And if you're, if you were trying to kick out animal products for, you know, for whatever reasons, then you do have to be more careful. Um, and, you know, you certainly have to use more protein supplements, I believe, mm. because there's only so much plant-based protein sources your stomach can handle in a day. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. Using a protein powder can be very helpful. And that's what I do, you know? Okay. Well, Tom, I hate to do this. I think this is going to feel a little bit abrupt. And I, I do want to close with uh, a couple more final questions, but I have this long list of notes. I think we only got to about half of them. <laughs> so <I know> we, <laughs> you, you we and I are going to have anything. to do, yeah. I know you and I are going to have to do a round two, maybe a round three and just keep this conversation going. But just based on my circumstances today, being here course, still at Whole Foods, um, my computer battery is running down to the end. And um, oh, yeah, I think, I think we'll have to close this first conversation. I would just love to ask you two final questions in wrapping up. Um, first off, what is something that you are excited to learn more about right now? Like what is something within this field, within this scope, working with athletes that just is exciting and new and interesting to you that you're, that you're learning about right now? Well, interesting is, yeah, so one of the things, big things I'm looking at more and more, which is totally unrelated to nutrition, but is um, basically something called EMDR or eye, or eye, sensit eye movement desensitization, re let me find it, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. So this, for the, for the listeners, we were going to be probably speaking for a whole other hour about the nervous system and all this sort of shenanigans. Yeah. I hope we, we will do it another let's, point. Let's plan on it. I'd love we'll to do it. it. We'll do it. Yeah. Um, but basically it ties into, into that and in a very, and we'll, we'll talk about it more on, on the next one in detail, but in general, um, it really is about understanding that the, we have a very arrogant view of the mind or our consciousness as being the driver for everything we do, but actually it's our body and the way that let's say the tissues are actually dealing with the information. And what this EMDR is doing is it's a psychiatric technique that allows people to process memories and specifically used in things like PTSD and process them and move them from this kind of fear center of the brain into the sort of cortex and having a better rational understanding because in a very, very quick sense, and I'd love to talk about this in detail with you is that what happens to us and what we go through literally kind of gets stored in our bodies and the way that our brain works follows what the body has dealt with, not the other way around necessarily. And so these sort of techniques like EMDR and stuff like that are changing this mapping in a sense um, and moving stuff out of the physical body into where it should be. Um, and that's why it helps with things like trauma and the feedback. So anyway, big thing for me is because I'm working with more and more people who are coming from disordered eating backgrounds and there's a lot of other stuff you know, I spend all my time, you know, talking to people on a very deep level. I'm understanding more and more. I want to understand a better development of tools um, that I can point people to or, or, or derive some sort of inspiration for and start to show people um, that their bodies 
and changing their bodies first, including with nutrition, can actually change their minds. And rather than mm. trying to think it from a top-down approach, change your mind and your body will follow, it's actually the other way around, um, mm. which is all this sort of reset send stuff and that, that I'd love to talk about next time. So very exciting. I'd love it. Yeah, I think what I'll do, I've, I've done this, of course, in the past uh, for people that have listened to the podcast, but I've put out some you know pretty big mega episodes as a part one and part two. And in the past, that's always just been like, you know, Dave McLeod and I had a three and a half hour conversation. So I split it out, split it up and put it out two weeks in a row. But what, um, what I'd love to do with you is maybe we can just have another conversation in another week or two from now yeah. and just yeah. dive into uh, the nervous system and these other topics. And I'll just put this one out as part one. I'll have part two coming soon and we can just continue the conversation. Love it. I'd love it. Yeah. All right. I will, I'll ask you the gratitude question uh, for now, just to make sure that we check that box. I'd love to hear what is something that you've been especially grateful for lately, Tom? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for me has been just, you know, just the people that I've got to work with. And, you know, when, when I started doing Useful Coach, you know, it was, you know, it was macros and targets and performance. Um, and the way that somehow it has moved to this sort of talking position, man. I mean, when you get to listen to like 15 hours of conversation with people every week, you're just amazed. Like I just find it one. I just love the fact that people are open to talk about their lives at different levels, you know, but two, I come away and it's like, I mean, you know, as a podcast host, right. You just like, it feels like an utter privilege to just hear other people talk and share stories and, and you know nuggets and things like that mm. and i get that all the time like that's literally my job now um and it's just yeah it, it's lovely because i just see and also it, it it's you know i'm useful coach because i my whole life i want to be useful and i find that when i get that time with people and you know they go away and they come back and they say you know that thank you that was really helpful you know on whatever level whether it's carbohydrates or you know, something else going on in their life. I'm grateful to be that, whatever, that little, that point in their life that can cause a change, a ripple or whatever that can set them on a different path, you know, to greater opportunity. So mm. absolutely, that's what I love it. I really do, really do love it. Well, amazing. And you compared it to podcasting and I feel, I feel so similarly. I, I tell people, I just told someone this yesterday, this is just, as much as it's amazing to me that this is working and it's allowing me to live this lifestyle that was a dream of mine for so long, it really truly is the most fun I've ever had <laughs> doing yeah. anything. And it continues to be that. It gets more exciting the longer I do it. And um, I just never expected to connect with people like you and have conversations like the one we just had. And it's just the greatest gift. So yeah. thank you so much for all that you do and for, for taking the time today and for sharing all this with everybody. I think there was a lot of very useful information in Good. there for me personally, and I'm sure for people listening. So thank you, Tom. Awesome. No, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Of course, my pleasure. And I look forward to another round very soon. I'll be in touch. Thanks so much, mate. Have a great day. Okay. All right. Talk with you soon. Ciao. Hey, friends. Thank you again for listening all the way through. I'll be back with Tom next week.
So come back next Monday, check out part two. We talked about all new stuff. It was an equally fascinating conversation. I loved it. I've never talked about some of this stuff before. And in the second conversation, Tom shared a lot more of his story and he's got one hell of a story. And it was beautiful and heart-wrenching and really powerful to listen to. So come back next week for that. And in the meantime, have an amazing week. Thank you guys so much again for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, cause no